hey, we fucked. Right. And that means nothing to you? This is You're going to throw it all out because you're afraid of what your dad thinks or whatever? You know what? Fuck you. Thank you for being here. And I'm so happy that you've come to join me. Good morning. Good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. There is there are very strong parallels, obviously, between when you when you when you when you care about your work so much and and your work and your life are are, are one and the same. That they're, they're there's they're very difficult to separate. There's no separation um, for me. You know, I don't have any hobbies besides doing this. This is what I do. This is my life. There is a huge tradition in, in art of all kinds of moral instruction, but most of the best art is much more ambiguous than that. It mm-hmm. suggests several things at once, and a lot of art is questioning rather than instructing. 200. Yeah. Wow. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Directors Club podcast, episode 200. When me and Jim started this podcast in 2011, we would have preceded an episode by ordering Papa John's and perhaps drinking a beer or three and Ugh. then just yelling at each other because we don't agree on things. It is now 2022. We preceded this episode by eating a salad. Uh, we are drinking nothing but water. <laughs> And we're about to watch two movies that we disagree on, and uh, we've sort of made the commitment that we're not going to yell at each other about them. What? No. Um, this is the 200th episode of Directors Club Podcast. It is the 300th episode, if you include bonus episodes. So either way, big anniversary. It's been over 10 years. Can't believe we're still here, still doing this. Can't believe you're still listening, to be quite honest. Uh, how are you feeling about everything, Jim? I'm kind of overwhelmed in, in a good way. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 surreal it's i mean part of me every year does have that existential crisis of like why am i doing this yeah yeah um but i'm still grateful that people are subscribing and listening and you know do there's certainly been some nice itunes reviews recently um very grateful for this listening audience and grateful for your friendship all these years too because uh yeah, I mean, like uh, like most people know, our origin began when uh, I, I set up a house show where I actually made pierogies and baked cookies and wanted to really, you know, be welcome so many wonderful creative talents to the uh, house of gray noise. As Who it then was called. said, these cookies aren't vegan. <laughs> Oh man! Well, this wasn't the Southwest Folk Fest, but okay, okay. You know, still, it was interesting. It was an interesting experience being able to do that for a while, and then, of course, you show up like a force of nature and just started talking about movies with me. That's true. I was very manic at the time. Yeah, and um, uh, now now you're very chill. You're very re- relaxed. You know, um, you I, yeah, yeah. You don't necessarily get mad at me when I you know like a movie like Sofia Coppola's Somewhere. Yeah, so. 
you know, we're in, we're we're really doing well growing up all these years. <laughs> I think probably um, yeah. something, or we're just we're just I don't care anymore. I'm just like so dejected that this is <laughs> a, this has defeated me rather than mature mm. me. Either way, um, we have two movies that we're going to record commentary tracks for. Yeah, and, and folks don't even know what they are until the episode is released, which that, is wild. That's going to be fun. But you know what it is because you saw the episode title. We're going to be covering Crash from 1996, the da- transgressive David Cronenberg, uh, uh, not erotic thriller, but uh, probably sex interrogation would be a oh. more fitting term. Um, and we're going to cover the what year did to 2017 the 2017 paul thomas anderson film phantom thread the um psychosexual uh sort of uh gamesmanship and uh paul thomas anderson sort of dominating us with uh, <laughs> his uh, photography yeah and camera work <laughs> uh, the audience in fact are the b- ultimate bottoms uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, very much so. It's, so it's, uh, these are movies that we disagree very strongly on. It's, I, I, I'm warming up to it. Yeah, and the yeah. more I watch it, yeah, for sure. And you know, I don't, I don't just. Uh, I am a big fan of Crash. You are a big fan of Phantom Thread. Correct me if I'm wrong. You would is Phantom Thread in your top 100? I believe films? so. Um, you did that episode with Bill recently, but I couldn't quite remember. So you might like Phantom Thread more than I even like Crash, but we're both very enthusiastic about the movies. And mm-hmm. the, the the genesis of this episode was us trying to be like, what are two movies that we really strongly disagree on that would be fun to hash out while watching them? And it just so happened that we both picked two, like these kind of psychosexual uh, examinations of um, power dynamics mm-hmm. and... Uh, uh, people's uh, struggles to maintain uh, sort of equilibrium and uh, sexual fulfillment within relationships. They ended up being like very different movies, but also very similar movies. Yeah. Um, it's so, a very interesting pairing. Yeah. It's a good double feature, honestly. Um, yeah. And things that I'm interested in, it's certainly unconventional relationships. I'm really drawn to in cinema. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know. I know obviously crash is a very divisive movie is phantom thread in Paul Thomas Anderson's filmography divisive I or feel am like I, most people I know love it. There yeah. are a couple. What do you think the most divisive Paul Thomas Anderson film is? Cause he pretty unanimously sort of beloved by the cinephilic world. Honestly, the, the one I love the most, Inherent Vice, seems to be... That's right. I forgot. Yeah. That one's... Loathed by a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of people... Who really maybe, who, in my opinion, probably have only watched it once. I, mm-hmm. you know, but, you know, they, they might just go, oh, I don't need, I don't feel the need to revisit that because it just didn't click with me. Yeah. So, so we're going to be doing a double feature. We're going to start with David Cronenberg's Crash, and we're going to follow it up with Phantom Thread. Uh... Buckle your seatbelts. We're in for a long podcast as we uh, tackle Indeed. these two movies. Well, you mentioned Bill Ackerman really quickly. Okay, yeah, go for it. So I wanted to say... Oh, um, and I did want to say thank you to Bill Ackerman. I hated Crash the first time I saw it. He did a bonus episode where he challenged me to revisit all oh, of these films yeah. that I didn't like. And while I still am not on board for the unemotive robotic performances in Hal Hartley's films, I <laughs> am now on board for the unemotive robotic performances in David Cronenberg's Crash. And that was oh, because yeah. he made me give it a second look. That's so a good point. You, I should have listened to that conversation because I'd forgotten about it. But yeah. uh, that was a great episode. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, he's one of our favorite previous guests and friends and a host of the Supporting Characters podcast, which I'm so grateful that that's returned as well. 
But uh, the, the big news in terms of Directors Club is that he's agreed to come on to host his own episodes. Mm. Every other month, starting in June, Bill Ackerman will choose a director, possibly a little bit more obscure. We'll see. And there's, there's certain, it's all up to him. I'm not going to like demand like, oh, you can't do that or you can't do this. It's all uh, like he's going to bring forth a lot of the supporting characters, uh, crew, and people that he's interviewed in the past to guest on those episodes. And, you know, this show is where he kind of got his start as a as a great podcaster in his own right, because he did the Nicholas Rogue episode. And That's since right. then, it's been a loving, wonderful, nurturing <laughs> podcasting relationship. And, of course, his show is uh, supporting characters on the Now Playing Network that I hope everybody subscribed to because you, every episode's amazing. Um, but, of course, he's also a very busy guy. He does a lot outside of podcasting. So if he gets overwhelmed or too busy, he, he could also take a breather. And, uh, yeah, I just, you know, kind of wanted the goal is to maybe just do six episodes a year on my end, six episodes for him on his end. Of course, there's going to be plenty of bonus episodes. And in fact, in May, I'm not going to do a director. I'm having Keith Gordon come back to talk about underrated films of the 60s because that's become a yearly tradition. Mm. And it's always a joy. And I always discover new films due to his recommendations. And uh, he's a fantastic guest who, uh, yeah, I'm not going to spoil anything, but he might actually come out to Chicago within the year. That's all I will say for now. Oh, <laughs> we'll cool. see. We'll see how that goes. But um, yeah, that's pretty much the the major news there. Yeah. For all you uh, subscribers, be excited because I know a lot of people that listen to the show are fans of Bill. Yeah, for sure. Those are going to be great episodes. I'm I'm excited to continue to not listen to this podcast because <laughs> <laughs> I struggle listening to film podcast uh, film conversations that I can't be a part of. I think he's going to do the director of Cafe Flesh soon. Oh yeah, Stephen. So yeah. I'm mispronouncing you it. You might but, like that one. Uh, yeah, 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 maybe. I do like Cafe Flesh. Um, yeah, speaking of Cafe Flesh. Uh, is that the alternate title for Crash? That is not the alternate <laughs> title for Crash, but it is a uh, hardcore pornographic film. And while Crash is not pornographic nor hardcore, it is, in fact, uh, graphically sexual. Mm. And I do want to give a little warning to people. If you haven't seen Crash, if for some reason you decide, I'm just going to listen through this podcast and hear them talk about it without having seen the film, we are going to discuss, you know, sex uh, as a as a concept. We're not, you know, I can't think of no topic less interesting than the Sex Lives of Film Podcasters, so we're going to talk oh, yeah. about <laughs> our sex, but, like, we are going to talk about sex broadly, so if you are, like, sex repulsed or something and you don't want to hear, you know, anatomical terms and, uh, you know, about anal sex and semen and all that stuff, like you probably should skip ahead uh, to the timestamp uh, for the phantom thread, which will be much less detailed in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, if you like food porn, there's plenty of that. In exactly. Thread. Exactly. There's a little something for everyone on this one. Um, but before we can even talk about crash, you got to go get your copy. So go ahead and do that now. <laughs> Welcome back. All right. You have your copy of David Cronenberg's Crash from 1996. We're watching the uncut NC-17 version. I'm pretty sure every DVD release and Blu-ray release of this film includes this version or is only this version. Like the Criterion and the Arrow releases, I don't believe. Unless you got your copy at Blockbuster. Yeah. um, (laughs) There might be. I... I think that the Blockbuster one has both options as well. Really? Yeah. Um, I remember seeing an alternate cover art 
at Blockbuster oh, okay. or other video stores that were just like, this is the R-rated version. So I'm not exactly sure all of the differences between the two versions, but if you are trying to sync up this commentary track and you have the R-rated version, it won't sync up. But as long as you have the NC-17 version, you'll be all set. Now what you want to do is press play. We're watching the Criterion Blu-ray. Whatever version you have, it will sync up fine because you're going to press play and you're going to wait till you get to the opening credits. The first opening credits you're going to see are for the producers Jeremy Thomas and Robert Lantos. And what you're going to want to do is wait for those words, Jeremy Thomas and Robert Lantos, to be completely off the screen uh, after it is faded to black. Um, and then pause right then, because then you will be synced up with our copy, which right now is paused at that same moment. So as soon as uh, Jeremy Thomas and Robert Lantos is off screen in the opening credits of Crash, pause, you'll be synced up with our copy. Go ahead and do that now. Welcome back. All right. So now that we're all synced up, what's going to happen is I'm going to say three, two, one, play. And when I say play, I'm going to hit play. You're going to hit play. And then me, you, and Jim will all be watching David Cronenberg's Crash together. So here we go. Three, two, one, play. My first experience seeing this movie was in Northwest Indiana in a suburban mall theater. Yep. That's one of the crazy things about this movie is that that's where it played. Yep. And people walked out, several of them. Excellent. Yep. My friend turned to me and said, I can't stand this movie <laughs> at one point. I'm like, and you oh, agreed with just, him. Let's just see where it goes. That, yeah. was, that was my feeling because I've never walked out. I, well, have I walked out? Yeah, I've walked out of something and I can't remember what it was now, but um, I love the score. The score is great. And we're enjoying Howard Shore's very dissonant and sort of haunting and cryptic and uh, mysterious score right now. Now these credits at the time, you know, were pretty expensive, high tech CGI credits. The d sort of damage detail you might even miss if you're on a small TV on oh, the letters cool. that are all yeah. dented up as if they are cars that have been in accidents. Uh, for the budget that this film had, it, they're actually like these were very, you know, high tech impressive credits now they look very cheap and dated <laughs> which is fine it's like you know you watch the opening of panic room and you're like oh, why yeah. does it this movie open with like a freshman film students graphic design uh project um but the thing i really like about this movie is that it kind of smuggles a lot of really crazy subversive stuff in the skin of an erotic thriller. You know, it's like kind of the same way that like Twin Peaks smuggles mm. a lot of stuff in the guise of a primetime soap, soap opera. opera yeah. um, this movie was sold to audiences as an erotic thriller and it definitely um, very broadly, the structure of the film is, you know, of a married couple um, who a third, you know, chaotically sexual party enters their lives and then they're sort of tent is sent into a tailspin as they're chasing their desires. And this opening credit sequence, because it just kind of feels cheap looking, it really does make me think of just like something you would catch on Showtime at two in the morning. <laughs> um, so even Red though these have dated in a very specific way, they have still dated in a way I find very effective. And of course we dated are Cronenberg. We are <laughs> we are continuing the uh, sort of erotic thriller play with this opening scene. Um, Why in an airplane hangar, though? It's supposed to be about cars. It is a... <laughs> well, one, they're not a, a aroused by cars yet. But, I mean, 
part of this is like we are definitely in a world of wealth. We're definitely in a world of like mm. luxury. These like single passenger airplanes are, you know, uh, she, Deborah Unger's character um, is learning how to fly. And that is a very like I am a rich uh, person sort of hobby to have. Um, but yeah, this setup is like she's wearing very like traditionally sexy lingerie. She is this statuesque blonde um this is the kind of thing you would see in a red shoe diaries there those you know sex scenes are always yeah and he's subverting that i realize too it's it's like even just and a, but of course her breast being pressed against the plane yeah. is like a tease of what will come later mm-hmm. um but we're also getting introduced to the pace of the film like this is not going to be a uh, showgirls like a lot of moaning and groaning and thrusting. Yeah, even the sex is kind of slow. Yeah, I mean, just the, um, the arousal or the uh, seduction of it. Um, this but, character uh, is she's very you know cold and icy and she um, doesn't make eye contact with anybody. No, she she sort of um, her sexuality comes in kind of presenting herself as an object of desire and then later in um, both taunting her husband and interrogating her husband with her sexual exploits and his mm. like that head game that the two have is their sex life basically. Um, also important to note, uh, this is a movie that it doesn't just open with three sex scenes in a row, which is very unusual for a film that isn't a porno. This is a movie that opens with two cunnilingus scenes in a row. Oh yeah. Which, <laughs> That's true. That's very true. I feel like yeah. nowadays uh, a lot of films are very sort of frightened of depicting sex because there is this ongoing question of like, was this ethically filmed? What was the situation like on set? Mm. Like a lot of viewers are now more uncomfortable with seeing sex on screen than they used to be because those things are in their yeah. minds. They're looking at it more as a documentary. And one of the ways that a lot of movies get around that is like every time there's a sex scene in a movie now, cunnilingus. It's like, don't worry. <laughs> Don't worry, she got hers. <laughs> okay, yeah, of course. Um, Nothing wrong with that. There's like two movies with Adam Driver that came out last year where he's performing Cunnilingus on mm-hmm. someone. Um, and we, of course, our introduction to James Spader in this uh, movie is him performing Cunnilingus uh, with the camera girl. It's interesting, too, that we've paired these movies because I do think Phantom Thread at least covers some of the same ideas and themes of Secretary, uh, the James Spader movie. Oh, and of yeah. Course, and, and, well, I mean, in general, this is another part of the like erotic thriller smuggling is just the casting of James Spader, who is like yeah. the king of the erotic thriller and drama of like Sex, Lies, and Videotape and White Palace and Dream Lover and Bad Influence Ooh, and yeah. Secretary. All good, and, all good. Like, he is, he is just that guy, and... He is an asshole in most of the movies he's in. He is sort of rich and entitled in most of the movies he's in. I was like, going to ask to put the subtitles yeah, on. Yeah, we're going to put the subtitles on I right now. I forgot about that. Yeah. But the other funny thing about this movie is that it opens with two sex scenes, but they're not too like glamorized, uh, like Hollywood, um, unbelievable, mind-blowing orgasm sex. They are two sex scenes where the partners didn't have orgasms. Like, very importantly, he got interrupted and she didn't finish. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I do think that's, like, really interesting is that these are, this is a kinky couple. And that's all Cronenberg movies, right? All Cronenberg movies start with a protagonist who's already on the edge. Oh, you yeah. Know? Especially you, the fly. You get, yeah. You, well, yeah. And, of course, Videodrome. Mm-hmm. Um, scanners, you know, Cameron and Scanners is a homeless person before he gets picked up by the Institute. This 
location oh. is so unbelievable. Oh, I know. Is it Toronto? Is it this, is, it's uh, all shot in Toronto. Highway 401, I think. Oh, is that the... Yeah. I, I think it's... Yeah, it's known as like one of the heaviest traffic you know, highways in the it's world. It's so great. <laughs> it might all be of in the, the world. intersecting, all going different directions. Like, it is just such yeah, a beautiful. stunning visual. Um, and it's hypnotic to watch in a way that the what film is he can reading be hypnotic there? to watch. He is a pro- he is a director of com- car commercials. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. So those are the storyboards. It's funny, though, but for a second I thought it said J.G. Ballard on the top of the... Well, it might have said James Ballard, because yeah, that's okay, his that's character's probably, name. Yeah, that's probably right. Um, that's interesting. And I've read the book, and I really do enjoy the book. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, like, watching the movie isn't as exciting for me. Or I think it's because you have a chance to empathize a little bit more with uh, the Ballard character by reading his uh, internal narrative. Now, the way that Cronenberg shoots this crash is really great because he does not fetishize it, actually. Like, it's extre- it is four cuts. It is impact, body flying through window, car settling as glass flies down, uh, and then Spader's reaction. Mm-hmm. That's it. There's no slow motion. There's no multiple angles. Yeah. You don't get a nice wide shot where you see the bodies crumpling. This isn't death proof. No. <laughs> this this moment right here, though, is a thing I think Cronenberg botches a little, which is that is his hood ornament um, oh. imprinted onto his hand. Oh. It's not clear. I've seen, you know, you, I've seen this movie like three times before I listened to the commentary track and realized that's what that's supposed to be. So I think maybe that effect isn't very good. Why does uh, Holly Hunter take out her breast? Here? She is trying to escape. Okay, the trauma. That she she just is not wearing anything under her trench coat because she also is already on the edge. She, mm-hmm. who knows what her and her husband had, where they just came from or where they were going, yeah. but whatever it was, it was somewhere where she was wearing a trench coat and nothing on underneath. So they were already sexual thrill seekers the way. Mm. And it mm. does really look like she's exposing herself, but like she's struggling. She's trying to escape out of the thing. Yeah. Um, the this, makeup this effects makes, in this movie are so incredible. It makes me very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Uh, I love it so much that mm. all the dead necrotized skin on his neck and mm. the um, oh the makeup. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. so good. Um, now the, the, the depopulated <laughs> airport is also like a great location, and in general, like this is a movie about how these people are really isolated and sort of like they're outside of society. And so, oh, yeah. the the J- Cronenberg is not interested in strict realism or naturalism or anything. He creates this like they're like what hospital has like these crazy purple bread bed spreads, and then like later on, like she's wearing this like very seductive crimson like bathrobe at the <laughs> like <laughs> like what hospital gown looks like that? You know, it's, yeah, it's almost yeah, yeah. closer to something like the garb that the uh, gynecologists wear in Dead Ringers or whatever, where it's like definitely. I thought of that actually rewatching it too. There's so dead, dead I, I do touches. like this location. Now I will say one of the weaker points of the movie, and I've read reviews that disagree with me on this. I don't think Deborah Unger is a great actor. Um, I would agree. I think she's a character who sort of stands apart from everyone. So the fact that she is like sort of separated in her, you know, performance and style and stuff like that's fine too. She's definitely isolated in that way. And like as an actor to take on this role, like, um, like all the respect in the world to Deborah Unger. Cause this is like the hardest role in the movie. Mm-hmm. Not only is she have a lot of like subtle conflicted emotions that she doesn't want anyone to see. Um, she's also just naked and having sex for most of the movie. And those are hard scenes to shoot. Like just, you know, yeah. emotionally as an actor and your job is, you know, to be this character. Like it's, that's difficult. Like she, it's the equivalent of a really physical, like stunt heavy, kind of performance and so the fact that like um she doesn't 
there's supposed to be a certain amount of nuance um, to her performance and to her sort of ambivalence to what's happening to her husband and where she fits into it and her struggle to fit into it. Yeah. Um, I saw there was too much ambivalence and too much detachment. I mean, clearly they they are experiencing some sort of displacement in the world, and mm-hmm. they've they've latched onto this sort of like little cult mm-hmm. of people who can connect this way. And so maybe it's a beautiful thing. I think that's how Cronenberg frames is it. like, oh, all these people are coming together and having a connection, so they're not completely isolated anymore in what their desires are. Like he's, he, I think he frames it that way as like being like yeah. the ending is beautiful. Yeah, it's like, but it's also like it's it's not just beautiful. He's this isn't like a uh, like John Waters is someone who will <laughs> make a movie that's championing the weird outsiders who find each other and doesn't mm-hmm. matter how antisocial their behavior is, it's all justified because of their glorious nature or whatever. Yeah. Like he has ambivalence too. David Cronenberg is also frightened by their relationships with technology and everything. He's just not alarmist about it. Um, yeah, he's he, not judgmental. And I will say uh, we're introduced to Elias uh, uh, or Elias Coteus. Yeah, Elias Coteus is so good in this in movie. movie. I love that he's chewing gum because it means he's just breathing through his nose. And this whole movie, he mm-hmm. is just like heavy breathing because everyone else is sort of like they're hovering around this fetish and he has like, he doesn't really have a job. He lives in his car. He yeah. kind of is just aroused 24 seven. Um, and of course this is like very gay in the best possible way. And then <laughs> he's, it's a very animalistic performance as he's like sniffing him out. And you, you got so. James exposing his breast the way a lot of the female characters in this movie expose their breasts. Um, like let's compare scars. Like much. consent is actually a big part of this movie in a mm. way that, even, you know, other good erotic thrillers or whatever are like, usually you don't bother with the minute details of consent because it's a fantasy. And it's so, so it's sort of like, we don't want to get, you know, down in the nut, Monday nuts and bolts. Uh, I also love the costuming where it's like blue, red and white. So they're all just like, uh, yeah, paired perfectly together, but also separate. Um, again, a very, uh, there's hardly anybody in this hospital. <laughs> it's just them. Um, uh, it's it's like the outside world doesn't exist. Yeah, you know, it's like yeah. a, it's like an alternate universe. Exactly, and and I think that like Cronenberg is trying. He's not like just interested in telling an, a fascinating and transgressive and sort of thought provoking story. Like he wants to explore these ideas, and I think that stuff can get lost if you are arousing an audience. I think a lot of audience yeah. members, if I think a lot of audience members could walk away from this movie potentially with the. Ted Turner, who ran New Line at the time, was very against this movie being released. Uh, teenagers are going to have sex in cars. Right. Or like teenagers are going to cause intentional crashes or whatever. Mm. And like this movie is so not sexy. This movie. And there, if this movie was warmer, if this movie did have more just like passionate lust, then you would have the thing where audience members would just be sort of slotting themselves into genre and just being like, oh, yes, I know what this is. This is erotic. This is the scene that's sexy. I guess car crashes are kind of sexy. Like, Ugh. and it's like, well, I mean, you know, whatever. I'm not saying this movie, if this movie was shot like Basic Instinct, um, but it was about car crashes, I'm not saying it would be irresponsible, but I'm saying the ambivalence and the remove and the clinical dialogue and everything, they're all aesthetic tactics that you can't look at these people literally. Like, it's yeah. just, if you look at these people literally, you're just like, these aren't human beings. Like, what the fuck? But like that's kind of what I've done yeah. in my initial viewings of this is like I, I just I can't connect with these people. Yeah. 
And um, because there's nothing in this movie that is like explicitly surreal and supernatural, people are more likely to watch this movie um, literally, unlike saying like Naked Lunch. Like Naked Lunch just exists yeah, in its own yeah. universe where it's like you can only view it as metaphor and symbol and everything because that was more penetrable for me in that way. Yeah. Yeah. He made that decision. But this also exists in its own universe. Um, um, but I will say, despite it being at a remove, despite a lot of the characters being really unemotive, I find this movie very moving and very personal. And I find this movie to have actually much more pathos than the average David Cronenberg movie for me. Oh, interesting. Um, part of it is, uh, as we see James sort of struggling with the idea of looking at all this traffic, God, those, fucking great makeup effects it's so it's not over the top but it's like it's so realistic and amazing um i was in a traumatic uh incident with a car uh, that's what i was thinking just about 10 years ago now um like i think early 2013 it happened um and there's more traffic than there used to be is a legitimate thought i had um when i would be you know i live in chicago so i'm a pedestrian i'm walking around i'm crossing streets at stop signs Mm -hmm. and in my head it's like oh my gosh all the cars are running through all these stop signs like that's my trauma and i'm like 10 years later i still have trauma i still when i ride in the front seat of a car it simulates the feeling of lack of control that i had and yeah and i actually like start panicking and stuff um so in that way it's like just a very direct one-to-one like Yes, I also have car trauma. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, I don't get to get off on it. I just uh, get to wake yeah. up screaming from nightmares where I'm in an out-of-control car. <laughs> the one time I was in a bad accident, I was like in an altered state to where I didn't even acknowledge my body. And it was just like I disassociated almost because it was a whole new feeling. Because you've never been in too, with before. the two different planes of traffic whizzing yeah. by right outside the parking garage. Uh, whoever did the, um, that's a great shot. There's look, a lot of great, I mean, I, we'll get into whoever both, did the location scouting in this movie, like really deserves a lot of credit because, mm-hmm. uh, well, there's, and there's a lot of like big windows and reflections on people's faces. And like, you're looking out car window. like there's a lot of sort of the separation of the characters in the outside world, but the outside world always being there. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you something but they about feel, this. Yeah, alienated from it. So you you would consider yourself like a fan of David Cronenberg? Very much so. He might even be in my top ten favorite directors. So for me, the sort of the issue that, and I know that you've sort of come around and you're a bigger fan of this, or at least you enjoy this movie more than you used to. I enjoy to. the cinematography and the music especially. Um, um, do you not feel like uh, a distance and a coldness towards his protagonists in most David Cronenberg movies? Because I feel like... Like I watch Videodrome and I care less about James Woods than I do about I guess. James Spader in this. Like, um, for me, there are like three David Cronenberg movies that have like real pathos, and that is this uh, Dead Zone and The Fly. The and Fly every other movie is uh, yeah. very cold to me. I, I get very emotional with The Fly. Yeah, because I understand like being really obsessive yeah. about something, but like scanning, creating you don't something, really get emotional investment. The, no, the lead in you know The Brood is not. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of pathos to him really and um you know dead ringers i never like get super absorbed in their emotional journeys yeah i, I find it more interesting on an idea level um naked I, I, lunch obviously is just like all ideas i get i guess i have a emotional response to history of violence history of violence sure yeah i haven't seen that movie maybe since it probably came the out. father and son element of that film does hit home in a way. I'm not, that I, not that my dad was a uh, secret hitman or anything, mm-hmm. but 
Uh, no, I, there's there's moments throughout his filmography where I do feel something other than like, oh, this is a cool exercise and style. And this is another great location. We do see cars in the in the background too, in addition yeah. to all of the broken cars. <laughs> It's like watching an art installation piece at times yes. where there's you're a little bit out of remove, but you're still observing things and finding the beauty and even just like the way a car has been destroyed. Yeah. You know, I mean, well, it's contemplatively paced, which I don't know if contemplatively is a word, but like when you watch slow cinema, when you watch a uh, memoria or, you know, a, uh, did you see that by the way? I did see that, but oh. we'll, we can talk about that another okay, time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, it it allows you to just sit and consider the images. And that is like a big part of, even though this is a much more narratively driven film than anything by uncle Joe, like this is mm-hmm. a very, that is definitely the approach that Cronenberg is doing here. Um, her costume design throughout this movie is so strange. The gloves. Uh, it's uh, the gloves and the trench coats and the, I love the casting. Of she Holly. even comments on it later on and like, I'll wear a fucking kimono if I, if I want to. Right. Um, well, that's specifically in him making a joke about her not wearing like black, like she's in mourning. Mm. Um, but like <laughs> one thing I've, I really like about the casting of Holly Hunter is that like, if you are like, if you imagine the made for cable late night streaming version of this movie, where like she is the, you know, sort of sexy stranger who enters their lives in some way. Like, you never cast Holly Hunter. Holly Hunter is great because she is not, like, a traditionally just, like, she's not the statuesque blonde, you know, Mm -hmm. everything that Deborah Unger is. But, like, she's so fierce and she's so willful in all of her performances and stuff. And in this, um, there's never any question that, like, she is... She has 100% agency the way that he does. There's never any question, like... Oh, yeah. is she a woman with a full, you know, internal life or everything? It's like, no, it's Holly Hunter. Like she, she is chasing after something in every movie she's in. <laughs> like she, you just look at her eyes, uh, and she's just sort of like, you know, she's searching for something. Very um, much so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I li- and I, li- I do like the repeated like sort of uh, sexual anxiety of the like seatbelt as almost just like. It's almost like he gets like penetrating into something. Well, or or it's just like it's it's almost close to like the chafing of like an mm-hmm. erection in tight pants or something. Like he's just sort of like mm-hmm. clawing at it with his hand. <laughs> um, yeah, again, attention to detail is one of Cronenberg's strengths. Like just to make that choice. To yeah, have that. yeah, and even like you, uh, this even her smoking like with the little cigarette lighter. I love because like yeah. Uh, and the way this is shot with the constant reflections of everything passing by them. Again, the thing I was saying about like they're separated, but they're also like constantly the outside world is coming in on them at the same mm. time. Um, like in the it, traditionally in film, like lighting a cigarette is a very sexual sort of a thing. Like someone pulls out a cigarette, someone else pulls out a mm. lighter and yeah. it is this bit of foreplay. And now she's having a bit of foreplay. With uh, he doesn't shoot it erotically like that, but it is still in some way like uh, she's having a little bit of foreplay with the car. <laughs> yeah, it's like some of this dialogue is taken directly from the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I just didn't know if it translated as well, especially once we get to like Elias Coteas. And I've mentioned this before on the podcast where I feel like him spelling out the themes directly to the audience really bothers me. Mm. And I think even Bill at the time was like, Oh, I think that's Cronenberg sort of making fun of that choice. I don't think, I don't think the themes of the film are spelled out. I think 
I think he. I think, or at least that's he, his thesis. He, he, he like, demystifies his character's motivation, mm. but it's not the film itself. It's what is what is going on with this character in this character's head. He enters the film as a very mysterious, enigmatic figure, and then about halfway through the movie, he dispels all that, and then suddenly you can empathize with him because you realize that his whole thing about like his. Uh, the reshaping you know, of project. the human body. Yeah, by his secret project is technology. actually like, no, no. He's horny. Like his secret project <laughs> is his word for I'm horny in the specific way you are. I also like that um, right now um, James and Helen uh, have kind of a like feeling out process the mm-hmm. way that um, that James and Vaughn uh, have, but it's like it's a different thing because Vaughn is this sort of feral animalistic guy, and he kind of takes what he wants. Oh yeah. Um, whereas they are both unsure about these feelings they have. They're they they know in that near miss that they have the same feelings. That's the thing that makes it clear. Yeah, there's a little awkwardness, especially once they're trying to get their clothes off here. And, and there is something a little tender about it's very real, like just the moments of like, I, I can't get this thing off. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta get this off. And there's still people in the background here, which is interesting. Right. Well, it's you know, they don't matter. They don't have faces. Yeah. As the movie goes on, you see less it's and like less. They don't care. Though. You see less and less people who aren't part of like the kink world at a um mm-hmm. I will say, like in general, this movie does a really good job uh to have all of its sex scenes. Um, oh, I did want to talk about just quick. one breast. too. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I do want to talk about like, again, we're talking about like the idea of these characters negotiating consent, not always verbally, but they are negotiating consent uh, in these sex scenes frequently. Um, and I think that there is something a little confrontational about sex scenes in which nudity, instead of just being like ambiently there is explicitly one person presenting to the other and like for their sexual satisfaction, Hmm. because I feel like in movies often we're like peeking through the keyhole and it's very voyeuristic and it's, you know, it's the scene in slumber party massacre where we're following the, the bar of soap and we get to watch all the teenagers shower and like rub them, you know, soap themselves up. Um, and we get to not be there. We get to be invisible and we get to enjoy it, but we don't have the, uh, we don't have the implicate. We're not implicated in our lust because we don't have the filmmaker sort of looking right at us and say like, you want this, you want to see Holly (laughs) Hunter's breast too. Um, and in this movie, because the women, you know, in these very sexy clothes and fetish gear and everything, they're presenting themselves to, to other people. Um, you it's a little less comfortable because even though it is in fact more explicitly consensual, it's less comfortable because you actually have to deal with, okay, she just did that. Did I want that to happen? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Like there's just a discomfort to it, but also, uh, I don't know. Like I, I was even just now watching them together. Is is he having an issue sexually, like satisfying her sexually? So that's why he wants to get her involved with Vaughn and this sort of subculture. I don't think it's. I think it's her wanting to get involved. I think she's on the outside, hmm. and I think he's getting so much sexual fulfillment with this new avenue he's discovered. But she wasn't in a car crash. So this movie is about her trying to find her place in her marriage under these new Hmm. circumstances. And a lot of her, I feel the character's motivations are her trying to do that. I love the way the audio in this scene is recorded. It's very clearly live microphone audio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You hear his breath so much. And again, he is just like heavy breathing uh, this whole movie. Um, 
Do you want to watch the Adam McGoyan film, The Adjuster? Because that's another like really strong mm-hmm. Elias Coteas performance, and it's a little similar in that he's an insurance adjuster going around seducing different people. Oh, really? Yeah. I have not seen any Adam McGoyan movie except for Chloe. So, like, I'm I'm just like Ooh, wo- woefully uh, yeah. behind on uh, on Exotica, that man. But maybe uh, that's a sexy movie. Another another Canadian <laughs> film. Another Canadian filmmaker who makes uh, provocative uh, material a lot of the time. Um, what happened to him? I can't think of the last thing that he was in. I'm sure he's been in stuff. He is. He has been in stuff. I looked up his IMDb, but it's like there was a certain point where he was in some big movies or he was some notable performances. And yeah, there, it got to the point where I think like in 2009, there was a really bad horror movie called Haunting of Connecticut. And he just shows up as a priest. And I was like, oh, he still acts. OK, <laughs> but like uh, he's in like Shutter Island for a brief scene. And that's yeah, it. yeah. That's I, I, I wonder uh what happened to him? Now, I, I did want to ask you, because you've read the book. I've not read uh, J.G. Ballard's Crash. Not in a long time, but I definitely remember really liking it. And yeah. kind of being into it, because it wasn't necessarily spelling everything out to me. It was just more of, like, descriptive imagery of mm-hmm. things. And certainly they were gross, and at times I'm like, ooh. But, you know, I still really found it fascinating to read. Um, almost like as an existential or philosophical kind of diatribe about... Like, oh, you know, we have this obsession with cars and technology to the point where it's merging with us and our sexuality is an extension of that. And I yeah. think that's what Cronenberg's trying to get at here visually. Well, I think something that's important to, and again, I haven't read the book, so this could be totally off, off base, but just in my research of like, uh, you know, looking at, oh, wait, when did this book come out? You know, what could, what would this mo- book be responding to? Because this is a movie. Came out in the 70s, I think. Okay, it was 1973. Hmm. And so, like, that is a movie that is, like, right at the start of, like, porno chic. And, True. like, Deep Throat came out in 1972. And, you know, it's, this is, people's relationship with sex was suddenly very different. And oh, yeah, mediated yeah. by technology in a way it hadn't before. And the, graphic images of people having intercourse like there have always been stag films like i'm pretty sure when the motion picture camera was invented at pretty shortly after someone was like yeah but what if what if we got a blowjob and filmed it uh-huh. <laughs> like, i'm pretty sure that happened but like it was not a mainstream cultural thing to see an unsimulated sex before that and like uh i don't i don't know jg ballard's uh relationship with hardcore pornography or his feelings on it or whatever but it's easy to see that as being one uh, sort of point of inspiration and anxiety, possibly. Of- oh yeah, it was it was fueled by anxiety and clearly, but at the same time, it was very personal, which is obviously why he named the character after himself, because <laughs> he was like struggling or wrestling or even at some points having nightmares about sex in really unusual places. Yeah, I guess. And I think what made me come around to this movie a little bit more is if I view it as Cronenberg's Tetsu the Iron Man, in that it's like. His this is the his world of like trying to confront the fears and paranoia of like what we're becoming mm-hmm. as a species and which is not a, it's not a new theme for him no no definitely Videodrome yeah was a big part that was huge. and Videodrome similarly is not violent videos are turning us into monsters nor is mm-hmm. it violent videos have no effect on us yeah like he he very specifically is not uh an alarmist in either direction. Um, he is not, I almost want this movie to go further and like literally the car. I mean, I guess that's more of the like Titan or Titan. I was going to ask you about (laughs) Titan, which is a movie you like much more than me as well. Uh, Not much more, but I I do think it's a movie you like more than me. I do like it. Um, Again, like two cuts, 
That's the whole crash. Yeah. And one of the, one of the cuts, you don't even see the front of the car. You just see it from the wheel well there. Well, that um, feels more realistic. Right. Exactly. And it's and it's just like kind of sudden and scary. And it's like it builds up anticipation. Um, you know it's going to happen. And mm-hmm. the way cars crashes in movies happen in generally is that they are spectacular and sexy things. And I do think like a lot of the people in this crowd probably aren't necessarily getting aroused. They are just like this, this movie came out in 1996. That's the same. That's the same year that Dave Michael Bay's the rock came out. And in that movie, you see a Lamborghini like flip in the air and land on a bus <laughs> and explode. And like, I'm sure the audience lost their fucking mind when they saw that. Cause it was just yeah. spectacular and amazing stunt. And like, I'm sure that the audience for this event some of them might be fetishists. Some of them might not be acknowledging whatever sexual arousal they're getting from it. But like, I'm sure a lot of them are just like, holy shit, they're going to crash cars right in front of us. This is cool as hell. I feel like this is kind of a meta scene, though. It's like James Spader and Holly Hunter are us <laughs> watching, you know, like this is the stage cinema event that, you know, he had in mind. Like he's almost like the director. Elias Cotes is the director of this car crash scene. And, uh, you know, the spectators are the audience there and they're watching this unfold the way we're watching this movie unfold. Yeah. And it's also like he is sort of his character is very central. And yeah, previous to this film or previous to the scene, he's only seen in the film. You assume he's a doctor. You assume he, you know, he's in these medical whites and he's yeah. clearly got some kind of thing going on. But you they have this uh admiration at like look at look at how riveted james spader is like he can't believe you know it's like it's one of those things where you know people say confidence is very sexy and like the idea that this guy has the same fetish as them and instead of being like unsure and anxious and yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. he is just like so fully committed and living it like it almost provides a path to them they see him Mm -hmm. as like this is one avenue we can go down. And it ends up, of course, that's how the movie ends is that they, in fact, he becomes the avenue that they go down and he becomes the vector for how they process, uh, their sexual arousal. Kind of desensitized by, for whatever reason in life that seeing something like this is exciting for them. Yeah. You know, I mean, it would be exciting for me too. I would, I would be too, I wouldn't want to watch it, but like, I'm sure if no, I wouldn't get aroused. I've seen car (laughs) accidents in real life. Like just driving down the road, seeing a car smash into another one, like 500 feet ahead of me. It's one of the scariest things you'll ever see. Oh, of course. Um, but like, yeah, I, it's very exciting. It's not hard for me to believe that you could find an audience, but I do like, again, in the more traditional erotic thriller version of this movie, you have three scenes where the detective shows up and goes, what, what do you know about this Vaughn character? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, like, yeah. you better watch yourself. You're getting in over you're your head, You're getting too James deep, Spader. man. Yeah, like you would have this detective character circling the movie, almost like, uh, what's his name in Christine? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you could picture the way he circles a movie. <laughs> Harry not Dean not, Stanton. Not saying, that, like, that's a poor choice uh, mm-hmm. in that film. But, like, I'm saying you could see that kind of character. Yeah, but I don't. Cronenberg's not interested in that for sure. He's but I, I do like this. <laughs> <laughs> Vaughn is an artist, and I do think there is like there is something uh, self-reflexive about this movie in that it is David Cronenberg, um, and this is the to be to be you know clear. Uh, he did Existence after this, but like. He did it for me, basically. He's like, oh, I know Jim didn't like Crash, so I'm going to make something I think he'll enjoy more. You you like Existence? I've I've not personally seen that one, so I can't can't comment on it. But, like, he had sort of made his bread and butter, even in, you know, quote-unquote prestigious literary adaptations like Naked Lunch. Like, he made his bread and butter on, you know, transgressive films about the body breaking down and, 
Like he a very obsessively uh, following this one sort of common theme. And then after this, he sort of separated into uh, more esoterically looking at how like a family unit breaks down or mm-hmm. how like an identity breaks down and, yeah. things, and things like Eastern promises and history of violence and, um, you know, how he social mores go. a little more conventional, surprisingly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think part of it's the subject matter and then part of it is just like. Uh, he did get a little more uh, respectable. Yeah. As <laughs> he went on. And this this does feel like him sort of looking back at his career up to this point and being like, I don't have the answers. You know, like you all look at me like uh, these are, you know, you look at my films like these are dispatches from like a mind that has like organized <laughs> and understands the way the world works. But like I'm working this shit out too. And the idea that Vaughn is this like director surrogate who's just sort of like, you know, he presents he presents as this like very mythical and complicated figure, and then the very next scene, he just sort of starts giggling at the at yeah, his little yeah. wordplay. Like you have to know that like David Cronenberg is like, well, of course, you know, uh, when I was talking about uh, the brood, I was talking about the way our our <laughs> angers, and then and, but you have to know when he saw the makeup effect for like the 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 cub licking, he was like, oh man, people are gonna lose their minds when they see this. He's yeah, great. yeah. David Cronenberg has an enthusiasm for makeup and special effects and stuff that like. He is not merely some respectable intellectual. He also understands genre and he also has an enthusiasm for exploring the baser pleasures of genre. You know, you don't make the fly because you are only interested in pure ideas. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> you make the fly because you're like, oh man, when like his ear the, falls off, people are going to lose their mind. Like some people do think of Crash as the ultimate Cronenberg movie, but for me, it's always going to be the fly. Like it's like kind of the perfect marriage. The I wouldn't call balance. this my favorite Cronenberg movie, but I can see how in some ways this is the ultimate Cronenberg movie and that this is the summation of a career. Yeah. Um, and then everything. Well, his new movie, the trailer I saw for him, like, okay, well, it, that could be, that could be it. That yeah, could be I the ultimate summation. For his new movie, but I'm, my understanding is it comes out in just a couple months, so I'm excited to check it it's out. It's going to be sick. It looks insane. <laughs> it looks like Crash on Meth or something. Like, it just looks like some of the visuals do remind me of Tetsu the Iron Man, which I'm like, okay. <laughs> go that far I, see that's the thing too with even with this movie i almost feel like you can go further man you can go you can well you can you can go into surrealist i think i think the most surrealist he goes is with the leg more. scar yeah because even um that's the part where it sort of leaves the realm of like literally physiologically could you have sex with someone's legs like wouldn't that be an open wound it wouldn't have that have healed by now is he tearing her scar open when he does it like you know, like, is an erection strong enough to tear through skin in that way? I don't know if it is. Like, that's the I part where it gets more into that. Uh, yeah. Um, obviously, you know, you, the leg scar is uh, very similar to the uh, the the sort of vaginal <laughs> opening that James Wood has in his chest in uh, video drum. That's the moment where my friend turned to me and said, I hate this movie. That's pretty good. Um, <laughs> I, I also, spot I also like, again, he's such, like, a mysterious figure, and he, like, seems to be, have, like, some broader ideas going on mm-hmm. and then when you go it's like this really depressing living room where everyone is just sort of like it's this it's it's not a sexy scene it's like a drug addict scene it's like these are yeah, all like they're all kind like of that's a, that, that is that is a junkie experience of just ending up in someone's living room at two in the morning and everyone yeah. is sort of zoned out watching tv well, and this is their heroine you're really. not sure no exactly they are more junkies than they are like you know snm swinging kingsters i like, love him in this scene though watch like him like slowly come on to James Spader in yeah. the background there. I just he, love that moment. He, David Cronenberg never soft pedals the homosexual attraction between the two. Like yeah. he, he foregrounds it consistently throughout the movie. Um, 
in a way that which is, he didn't do with Naked Lunch. That's the thing. It's it, like I I read uh, I read William S. Burroughs Naked Lunch again uh, just last week. Um, and that movie is like no, that book is like nothing but gay sex. Yeah, <laughs> like that book is like nothing but. We, we you want to hear all that everything out. that can happen to a penis and everything that can happen to an anus. <laughs> like, <laughs> and there's like that is not a gay movie. Yeah. Um, and it's like, and at the time, what he how Cronenberg justified it to Burroughs is he said like, look, Naked Lunch came out of your sexuality. My Naked Lunch can only come out of mine. And like to be fair, like yeah, David That's Cronenberg, he is a like married pretty settled down heterosexual like canadian uh you know he probably uh, is not going to tap in to the intense uh <laughs> the intense uh pleasure and lust and anxiety of being a gay man in the 50s yeah no <laughs> like, that makes sense um but at the same time you can also be like yeah well it's also kind of a you know, that's it's very self-justifying. But I like, like what J.G. Ballard said to him about this movie, which he did really love and thought it was pretty faithful, which I also feel the same pretty much. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you should have just named the character David Cronenberg. Yeah, <laughs> which David Cronenberg was like, never occurred to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, love Rosanna Arquette's, uh, like, fetish yeah. gear slash uh, brace, like... That that is that is perfect uh, production design, like right out of Dead Ringers, uh, mm-hmm. kind of gynecological instruments, where it's like, where it really is convincingly both. Like you would, I would believe you could walk into a sex shop and buy this. I would also believe you could walk into a medical supply store and buy this. Yeah, I well, in a way, that is kind of a summation of Cronenberg. <laughs> it's like he's trying to find that middle ground between the two, in something like Dead Ringers, where it's sexual and medical. Yeah, and I, I also really love like this whole. Yeah, again, uh, he keeps the same way that this movie sort of smuggles itself in the guise of an erotic thriller. This movie gets a lot of mileage and a lot of like anxiety and a lot of sort of ominous foreboding uh, feeling, which, you know, it's a movie sort of like, like a similarly, not similarly necessarily, but a similar fine line film uh, naked by Mike Lee is a film about like this sense of hopelessness at the end of a millennium. Yeah. Um, Like he gets a lot of that feeling out of, pretending that this is a David Cronenberg movie where there's a vast global conspiracy, which is a very common thing in David Cronenberg movies. It's mm-hmm. like, it's in scanners, it's in Videodrome, it's in Naked Lunch with the Benway Enterprises and all that. Like, that idea of the characters uh, are, have sort of found themselves embroiled in something that is deeper and they're, like, it works on a global level uh, is, you know, that that sort of apocalyptic thing. Like, Shivers is obviously very apocalyptic. Um, like, this movie... In another version of this story, you would find out that Vaughn is but Toronto's fucking head of a worldwide global traffic, whatever. Mm -hmm. Instead, he's a horny guy and he wants to come. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like this moment. Oh, yeah. This is kind of like uh, James Spader fidgeting with the seatbelt earlier. The sort of erotic frustration of that is that is apparently it was very, very funny. Someone told me when I was 17 and I was just like picking the label off of something. They're like, you know, that's a symbol of sexual frustration. And I go, I have ADHD. Yeah. (laughs) Like like I'm I'm, I have to be fidgeting with something. Right. I'm a 17 year old boy. So obviously I'm sexually frustrated, but I'm not sure if I follow you here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I will give it. I'll, I'll give Crash this is that I've seen this movie six times, you know, and it's it's mainly because like I'm trying to understand it uh-huh. and trying to almost like 
you know, when, when you're in college, you have to read like all these papers and sometimes it takes a long time to really understand it. So you have to keep rereading it till you do understand it. So you have like a, you know, a clear idea of what to say in class. Yeah. And this for me has always been that like experiment of like, I'm going to keep watching this to see what I get out of it. Or also if I can actually connect with these people. I love, I love this, these uh, car chase sequences because mm-hmm. you car chases only exist in the guise of a genre like a action movie or a sci-fi movie or something and they yeah. only are ever shot for like maximum excitement and thrills and stuff but like he doesn't shoot this like an action movie he doesn't get those nice wide shots uh, where you're that's true um, what he's doing is he's focusing on the characters and the faces and most of the cameras are attached to the car so like when the car moves the camera uh, the camera hmm. moves with it it's the background shifting around it and the faces remain in the exact same place in the frame. So he's kind of equating the characters and their cars. They're sort of becoming one with their vehicles because when the car moves, they move and it's all, you know, reflected in their face. And obviously a lot of cars themselves have faces like the little headlights. You can easily like look at any car and be like, Oh yeah, it's a little derpy face going. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So this this is my, this is my, this is my least favorite. Go ahead. Go ahead. I just don't, I just don't like it. I just, I think it goes on too long. I just think like the dialogue is still, like, I remember laughing in the theater. Yeah. I think laughing is an appropriate, I love this scene. I think laughing is an appropriate response. I do have a favorite scene in this movie, but this is my least favorite. This is your least favorite. That's totally fair. Um, I mean, partially I like this scene. To be fair, I was laughing when I read some of this dialogue in the book. Yeah. No, it's, it's absurd. You know, it's Mm -hmm. funny and it's absurd. It's not funny. Um, it's not intentionally funny, like, oh, man, I'm really going to crack the audience up with this. But it's intentionally absurd in a way that laughter is a very reasonable response to this. Yeah. I think this is what they had already done on the balcony at the beginning of the movie, where she's asking about how, was, how things go with your camera girl. And, you know, you know, I was, I was, you know, we were the only people or no, we were in the hangar. Anyone could have walked in on us. She is their sex life is this sort of psychological game where she's interrogating him and stuff. And. This is her in. This is her first attempt to be part of his sex life again. And so it's this merging of his thing and hers. It's also foregrounding uh it's also foregrounding the homosexual stuff in a way that I think 1996 audiences and even obviously, you know, even 2022 audiences were not comfortable with like uh you know, talking about male on male sex. When you talk about gay sex in movies or gay, you know, sexuality, affection, whatever, like romance. But why do you use the clinical terms? I well, just, again, it's a distancing thing. Yeah. It's a, this would you this is less <laughs> arousing to audiences mm-hmm, when it's mm-hmm. uh, clinical terms and I mean, I guess maybe she's thinking that's going to turn him on. Yeah. I mean, no, no, and it's I mean, it's she is she's prodding him. She is yeah. she he can't uh hide behind like ideas of like no, I'm just attracted to like the idea of Vaughn. Like I'm not gay. Like mm. I'm not, like she's like specifically like anatomically like when gay <laughs> men have sex, one you know, one penis is hard and then someone's anus except you know like unzip his greasy jeans. Yeah, yeah. Like I it's dual things. One is that this is like she is being confrontational and she's making him sort of uh, she's turning him on because he is uncomfortable because we have never seen any implication that he has ever been attracted to a man before. And he certainly Mm -hmm. doesn't have this relationship with any other men in the movie. He has relationships with several other women, but like we don't see him have any kind of gay relationship with anyone except for him. So it's safe to assume this is new for him. 
<laughs> right. Also, like, <laughs> you know, like, I don't, like, if this was scene was intended to make the audience hot and horny, then it would be like, oh, my God, what did they think they were doing? But, like, that's yeah. not the intention of the scene. It is about. Well, I think Cronenberg even said that it's like Vaughn is there in the room with them and they're having a threesome. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, he is, Vaughn is the figurehead both in his life and then after his death upon which all of their sexuality hinges because he is the ultimate expression of the things that they see inside themselves but are too afraid to uh, become. Okay. And. Okay. That makes more sense. It's just. Okay. This isn't. This, this doesn't have to go as long as it does, but I guess maybe we have to reach. Yeah, his, orga- I mean, his I'm orgasm. Not, I'm not necessarily going to defend like every edit, every shot is yeah. exactly what it needs to be or whatever. But like, I do like that we have seen her do this and like push him and he comes in, you know, while they're mm-hmm. having sex. And we cut to this part and it's like he is now back to. Yeah. It used to be like it was enough that they were both car accident survivors of the same accident and they were in the backseat of a car that is the exact same car he drove during the accident. He has now progressed. This mm-hmm. is not doing it for him. The same way that it used to be enough that Deborah or that Deborah Unger would come home from the hangar and tell of her exploits or whatever, like that wasn't enough anymore. And yeah. it's, there's this escalation, and there is this sense of like, there is, and this is true of sex in general. I think like there is no completion. There is no like, all right, I did that. It's like it's like food. You're just like, I'm gonna be hungry again. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and yeah. like, this is a movie Can all never about get the enough. chase. This is a mm-hmm. movie all about like. In like in a very broad sense, the way that human sexuality, all humans are uh, are basically doomed to be sexually frustrated and unfulfilled mm-hmm. because there is no final sexual fulfillment unless like you die in a car crash. I guess like yeah, and I guess that that again that comes down to the whole like inevitability of them <laughs> deciding to die. Really, like, like him, they want to. It's yeah, some him not coming in the scene, and then like this is directly tied to the very last scene of the movie. Yeah. Um, and so like, I think the reason again, that previous scene, it could have gone on shorter and probably gotten the same place. I think the first time that these two have sex in the car in the parking garage is also could be shorter, but like, and this is their porn. The juxtaposition. <laughs> this is so funny. I love how, again, not, this is not a lifestyle fantasy. It, yeah. I don't think anyone in the audience is like, man, these guys are so cool. <laughs> I would hope not. Um, I love the fact that it's German narrated because mm-hmm. it, it just implies mm-hmm. a depth to their tape library where they're like, oh, yeah, they got this material from all over. Yeah. Um, again, this is ridiculous. It's it's preposterous. It's funny. It's it's not a movie with jokes, but it is a movie that sees the absurd humor in the facts of and life true and sex. Phantom Thread. Like, I think there's really funny things in that movie. I, we, yeah, we can talk about that in a second because I, yeah. Yeah, I think we'll have the same conversations about like. I love again the, the thwarted orgasm. <sighs> this is the same as him being interrupted in, yeah, the, in yeah. the camera room and all that. Like, uh, this is a movie about sexual frustration. <laughs> okay. Um, and yeah, I, I can understand. I, that. Holly Hunter just getting so mad. And, oh, it's, just, <laughs> <laughs> it's so good, and it is also just like. Mechanisms of human ejection. Also, like they're or watching, ejaculation. They're they're watching a uh, they're watching a videotape. Like they are. This is how car crashes in movies work too. Like the thing is, as an audience, yeah, we watch theater, a movie because we want it, like the Michael Bay movie. We want right. to see the most outrageous thing possible. But you, and in the Michael Bay movie, specifically, even you you can talk about the very specific car crash I mentioned earlier from The Rock. Like 
we see the car hit something and then like go to slow motion because we want to build up as much tension as possible with the Lamborghini flying yep. through the air before it lands. And it's like, that is a very sexual dynamic that he is doing. Even if, even if Michael Bay and none of the people in the audience are explicitly saying like, all right, I'm horny for car crashes. <laughs> they are. They're horny for car crashes. In and a way. Like, and the and when the tape warps uh, out right before the car crash, that's mm. David Cronenberg specifically pointing, like, the dynamic that you are very familiar with when James Bond flies off the bridge and then suddenly everything yep, goes yep, to slow yep. motion, like, you are already in this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like going to the roll. It's going to go to uh, Six Flags. Oh, she's so cute, too. I think that's another good part of her casting is that yeah. she's so endearing. Like, these are so, these characters I watch are so sp- I want to watch a spinoff of Roseanne Arquette and Holly Hunter. Roseanne Arquette and Holly Hunter are just so naturally likable. Yeah. Um, and, and it's like very specifically. <laughs> that's a great shot. All of the nighttime photography in this movie is absolutely great. We live in an era with digital photography where like most nighttime scenes look like crap uh, because you can just sort of digitally in post like light and everything. When you're making this movie, it's very clear. Like they had to think hard about how do you light this? uh, You know, how do only using street lights? How do you, you know, the way these two are talking are very similar to like how we talk about movies when we get excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they're enthusiasts. Yeah. You know, any t- Let me any- tell you about this uh, movie we just saw. And, uh, there is yeah. there's something beautiful about enthusiasts finding each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and the confrontational part is that these are enthusiasts of something that is like so unbelievably antisocial and irresponsible. And like you should not want them to succeed in a world where this is the real world. Like if oh, someone yeah. told you the story of like, Oh yeah, my friend was in a car crash and then she got, you know, sexually aroused by car crash. You'd be like, oh my God, what happened next? She's like, oh, she just started driving recklessly through the highway. You'd be like, your friend is a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, fuck you're that. putting I mean, people's dangers or you're putting people's lives in danger. Right, yeah. yeah and but. it's like, but but obviously there's something endearing about uh weirdos finding each other. That that's just like a fact of cinema. That's the Wizard of Oz, you know? Like, oh, sure, sure. It's just been there forever. Well, even like that's just the way they look at these photos. <laughs> it's just like like we see amazing shots in movies. Like, look at that shot. You know, it it makes more sense to me now than it used to. Like, I, I appreciate the movie more. And as somebody who's really responding to um, just uh, like watching a bunch of David Lynch movies on the big screen recently, I'm like, oh my god, I wish I could have been a cinematographer because <laughs> I just love how things look. Yeah. And this movie definitely has an amazing cinematography throughout. And uh, oh, yeah. So um, I appreciate it for that. But, like, very pointedly, like... I just don't like, yeah, again, this dialogue so much. <laughs> like, him almost, like, spelling things out. Yeah, well, so... He's revealing, he revealing himself. Um, I don't think he is... Spelling I don't think this the is themes. what the movie believes. Okay. I don't think it's as simple as that. I think if the movie could be summed up, David Cronenberg wouldn't be interested. I think if he's not ambivalent, then he's not driven. Um, he's talked in interviews like, he makes a movie to find out why he made the movie. You know, yeah, like, I heard, yeah, his, I heard His that, movies yeah. feel like science experiments because he is actively like interrogating himself mm-hmm. and why this drives him. And that's often why like you watch a movie like Videodrome. Videodrome's not like, oh yes, this is a very neat concluded like this movie is saying this about this and like it's a very perfectly balanced metaphor and this and that like no it's messy and it's and it's and it doesn't always add up and like you 
you know, you ask what what's the ending about. There's not really like a pat answer that can just solve it as a puzzle. You know, the way that a lot of like you film culture now and YouTube and stuff is about like let's solve these films. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It's you know, uh, uh, Videodrome explained. Um, that's not what David Cronenberg is interested in. He is not interested in presenting riddle boxes to be solved. Mm-hmm. Um, he is interested in purposefully making. I love well, the way this scene is shot. By the way, where. Uh, we're stuck in the car the whole scene, and then even when we're out, like we're attached to the car, and you just get sort of like the camera is an extension of the car, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in a way, yeah. Um, no, but even like him just saying earlier, like the uh, I'm testing the resilience of my potential partners in my psychopathology or whatever. I'm just like, yeah, that's kind of what a therapist would say, and I think in, in to some degree that's how Cronenberg frames himself. As right, somebody. but if like, what does that statement mean? Sa- statement I don't means, know. Like, I'm fe- <laughs> no, well, the statement means I'm feeling people out so we can fuck, like. <laughs> Yeah, like, I guess if you want, yeah, when it comes down to, sure. I, there are a lot of people who write, <laughs> you know, very high-minded stuff about kink, but at the end they want to come. Like, that's really, like, that's the thing that mm-hmm. is at the base and drives them. And I think he is an erotic figure for all of these people because he has this air of mystery. But, like, he is sort of just giving the game up. He is just sort of saying, like, I don't know either. I'm yeah. I'm chasing it. And um, there's another sex scene where it's like, it doesn't necessarily need to be this long, but... There is something just like numbing about having this many sex scenes in a row. Um, Makes me want to watch Cosmopolis again to watch Robert Pattinson get a prostate exam. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, this is a movie that is very, you know, the so Cosmopolis, right, is a movie about like how the ultra rich are sort of isolated and um, cloistered and uh, protected from the world around them. And they're insulated from the from the results of the world that they create. Yeah. Um, and like the thing I really like about this movie or, you know, even the story, I'm sure it's true of the book as well. Um, just the premise. The thing I like about the premise is that like cars are selfish objects. Like I'm not saying everyone who owns a car is selfish because especially if you live in America, like that's just how the world is set up. Like if you don't have a oh, car, yeah. fuck you. Like, but like in a world that was egalitarian and equal and actually interested in justice, you would see more public transportation, more focus on high speed rail. You would see more bike paths. You would see more stuff for pedestrians. You would have a sense of public that is like a communal space that we all mm-hmm, share. Mm-hmm. Cars are our own little world. We don't think anyone can see us when we're singing along yeah, to yeah. songs and stuff. Like we are just in our heads. We'll just drive and drive. And it's like no one else exists. And like cars are a great uh, metaphor to examine sexuality because sexuality is the same way where it's like we're all kind of just like whatever dirty ass things that we, you know, actually turned us on. Like that's just ours. And we could tell people or not tell people, but like they can't actually know <laughs> like yeah. you're, you're sort of stuck in your own head with your own whatevers, you know. Um, and that's one of the things I really love about this movie. And again. Um, that scene in itself with him having sex with the prostitute, it's, you know, it's a nighttime shot. It's the, the way the camera pans as it's moving and you see all the lights and stuff. That's cool. And the score is good. But like one of the things that makes it good is that it is the very next scene. We see this voyeuristic thing that James has with Vaughn um, in a much different context. Uh-huh. So the prostitute scene is setting up the car wash scene. Um <sighs> Yeah, that's phenomenal. God, so good. <laughs> Again, like you would have a detective character in a more traditional movie, in a movie that it had any yeah, why concern it, why with like bringing questioned? a mainstream audience on, with any concern with um, uh, uh, exposition, 
um, with like onboarding uh, people so that they can understand why they should care about the things that are happening. Like you would have scenes where James is at work and people are like, man, you're really losing it. Like, <laughs> you know, like you would have like, did you even get any sleep last night? Like you would have the whole like, we're going to check in on the status of how his life has been disrupted. But like David Cronenberg just cuts every single ounce of fat from this movie. This movie to the point where it he does starts feel off inhuman. with a script of like 70 pages and like sort of like fills it, it out over time. Even movies that I consider kind of cold or whatever, like Videodrome, like Videodrome has a lot of humor. Videodrome has like some weird sort of curly cues where it just sort of oh, goes yeah. like it has that scene where they're on the talk show and it's just, and like they're, they feel warmer and more human because they're a little like messier and they're less relentless and you sort of get to exist and mm-hmm. ambiently be there with the characters. This movie is just like, relentless and every scene leading to the next uh, and everything that um, makes the experience smoother has been cut off. Yeah. Um, well, that's, that was my initial feeling. Too. Yeah. 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 Like, you know, it's too, that was cold. My it's too cold. Too. It's too cold. Yeah. It's too clinical. It's too detached. Yeah. I used to all the time joke about like, I do like that they have a police scanner so they can specifically seek out these car accidents. Oh yeah. Um, can understand that if you're into that. Yeah, of course you want to find it. It's like Nightcrawler again, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nightcrawler. Another movie, great night photography. Mm-hmm. Um, this sequence, this like fetish photo shoot on the site of a car accident. Unbelievable. It's so good. Yeah. This is like just as a set piece is like v- one of the highest moments of David Cronenberg's career. It might be like my favorite scene in his whole career. I, I don't know. I'd have to say I've not like seen a lot of you know, all of his movies all recently, but like, well, I'm sure, this, I'm sure people like this do it. Like, I mean, I don't know if they actively seek out grisly deaths or something, but some people, this again, like we talked about car when you crash, say people like this, do you mean car crash fetishes? Cause I don't well, know if that's actually, no, a thing. no, no, not literally that. It's just people when they see a car crash yes. on the highway, they will. Yeah. Turn yeah. Yeah. Luck, yeah. You know, again, like the, like the audience for the James Dean thing, like mm-hmm. them watching the videotape, like, Cronenberg's implicating us. Yeah. Um, Cronenberg saying these people aren't actually that different from you. And because he is saying something broadly about sexuality, that there's no statements about sexual sexuality that apply to everybody. Some people are asexual. Some people have low libidos. Some people have high libidos, whatever, you know, but like generally speaking, human beings, sexuality is organized in this way. Um, he like keeps poking back at us. It's not just like, look at these weirdos. Wouldn't it be funny if these people existed? It's like, you're them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like why, one of the reasons why I find this movie so moving. And again, like this is her, maybe I don't want to admit that. This that's is why her I don't very like specifically <laughs> um, in the way that she does, which is presenting herself as this object of lust, as a lust as this fetish. Like this is her trying to um, understand where they're coming from. Well, not or? even understand, but she is trying to place herself in the sexuality of these two. She, she, you know, you could, you could read jealousy, but you could also just read a sense of anxiety about missing out a sense of not being there. But like in terms she of wants to be a part of this. Yeah. She wants to be a part of it. And this is her sort of interjecting herself into the sex life of Vaughn and James. Um, this is her navigating, you know, her husband's life. This is, this is in some ways like this is a movie, a lot like Duke of Burgundy, which is like, how do you have a relationship and, and a sense of how do you, how do you build a sense of trust when people are Mm -hmm, so different mm -hmm. and you can't ever actually be inside someone's head? Like what, what, what steps do we go to to navigate? And then her like becoming this sort of like fetish model in her lingerie and, um, posing, uh, you know, taking the same position as the traumatized woman there and all that. Like, uh, 
goes yeah goes stand up and there. It's, and the music like, he's like directing yeah he's directing the scene yeah 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 um Ugh. I I think it's I just I still and the red I, flashing I a, lights yeah. on his face it's just I have like, a visceral and reaction the vaginal, to people uh, gash in the car like yeah. in the jaws of life going into it like a speculum like Jesus Christ <laughs> Ugh. I mean, but, like, it, there is, is, a is a work of, of art. There's a sense of her being like timid, right? Mm-hmm. There is a sense of her like being unsure. Yeah. There is a, if not reluctance, there is not a full-throated enthusiasm from her. She is, I mean, in, in at no point in the movie, she's just a very cold character. Yeah, yeah. But, but like, this is clearly in an alternate I, universe because the police would not let this happen. <laughs> even in a scene like this, which seems so untethered from uh, what we think of as natural human experience, like he still is a communicating important things about these characters. This isn't transgression yeah. for transgression's sake in a, you know, the nineties were a time where no, there were a lot a of films that were very movie. much like, let's push buttons because we want to push buttons. There were the natural born killers and the true romances and the, yeah, you know, and, 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 and that doesn't hold up as strongly. Yeah. And, now. and you know, there are movies that, you know, I don't like naked, but like Mike Lee's naked is very much like we are going to be transgressive and we are going to make the audience uncomfortable. Um, and that is part of our aesthetic tactic. Oh yeah, that, um, part of that movie is to provoke you, and yeah, you know, that can turn people. And so, off. in some ways, this movie is very much, despite it just feeling like this total anomaly, not just in Cronenberg's uh, filmography, but like in the '90s or whatever. Like, it is still a product of its time, in a way that, like, I don't think you can make this movie now, and not in a like stupid like they never make Blazing Saddles now, like kind of way. But like, like I just don't think that you trust an audience. Uh, without telling them, hey, this is bad, or whatever. There's always that moment. I don't know, but on the other hand, Titan won the Palm Door, and yeah, Titan is yeah. not a movie that telegraphs uh, a, more, a sense of morality to his audience. This movie won an award, right, for audacity or something? At, yeah, at there the was festival? a special prize at the Cannes Film Festival that Francis Ford Coppola desperately did not want it to get. <laughs> um Oh, there's a, an alarm going off in the background. For everybody. Yeah, there we go. We live in a place with sirens. Maybe there was a car crash. Uh, yeah, exactly. That was a ghoulish well, thing to say. I well, apologize it was, for that. It was, it was very scary to watch this again last night, and then I went on Facebook and saw a friend was in a car accident. A really, really, really bad one. Oh, no. But he's fine. That's the car good. totaled, but yeah, he's yeah. fine. That's good. Yeah, yeah, I've been in... I had my runaway car, but I've also been in... I rear-ended someone, and then I was in another car accident. Like, there, yeah, I had a... I once, like, just my car parked out on the street, had a car smashed into it, so my car was totaled despite it just being parked <sighs> on the street. Like, yeah, that's, that's part that's, of why I don't own a car anymore. Like, even beyond the trauma, it's it just like too much too, it's, to like it's keep repairing it. And like, ugh, yeah, it's, uh, I wish I didn't have a car. I just, but it's like I kind of have to at this point. I'm so used to it. It is like my little womb. <laughs> This is my favorite scene in the whole movie. It's probably this the whole, best scene. No, yeah, no, I think the previous whole, scene's the best. But like, yeah, it's definitely like this is an incredible moment. Well, that yeah, that 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 whole scene out there with the actual car crash is like foreplay for them, and now it's and like, also like the automatic mo- mechanical movements of the convertible's top going yep. up is just s- like her exposing her like that cold mechanical way that she exposes herself mm-hmm. in this movie. Um, I do like again. This is a movie where characters are explicitly. Um, consenting to the acts they're about to do, and like, sure, sure, yeah. Uh, this is a scene with very rough sex, uh, in a in a way that, um, you know, could could be to potentially be upsetting or triggering. And perfect timing. Um, <laughs> so good. <laughs> but like, uh, we st- but the sequence opens with her consenting. 
uh, with her providing not verbal, but enthusiastic sort of consent offering herself to him. And she likes the danger. She likes, we, we heard earlier where she had sex in the hangar. You know, she likes the danger of being caught mm-hmm. um, and stuff like that. And so when we see her sort of almost panic later in the back seat, um, as Vaughn has very rough sex to, with her, uh, we, we know that that is not because of what we already know about the character. We know that her panic is not the same as her not wanting to be there anymore. Yeah. Um, and even the next scene where we see the bruises, that is not like, uh, it's, yeah, it's really interesting the way that all of this is communicated without dialogue. All of the, no, they don't discuss it later. Uh, in the next scene, we're de- examining that's, the That's bruises. probably why I like this sequence the yeah. most because no music is, either. Yeah, no music. It's all silent. It's Though all apparently glances. Howard Shore works with the sound people yes. and stuff like that. Yeah. So like, there is a musicality to the rhythmic churning and chugging mm-hmm. of, of the car wash. Of yeah. the car wash. Yeah, yeah. Um, if if any scene is going to be imitated by teenagers, I totally believe at teenagers would go see this movie and then be like. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. the, the the third wheel, like yeah, I don't mind watching you fucking hook up in a car wash. <laughs> like I could totally believe that, like uh, some but car washes don't go on this long. To be honest, like, no. The ones but, I've had, I'm like they're over like in thirty seconds or something, like maybe longer. But and still. of course the the very suggestive uh, sperm like nature of the uh, suds, yeah, yeah, the suds going down the window and like across the window as James is watching them is yeah, like that is just looks like a cum shot. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and this, again, is a reflection Perfect. of the previous scene with the prostitute. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have not seen him actually witnessing, uh, you know, in, in sort of modern mainstream porn. Uh, this is this would be, you know, cuck porn or whatever. Like, like this is a, actually a pretty common uh, subgenre or fetish or whatever. Um, but, like, we haven't seen him present during this. So this is, again, an escalation as this whole film keeps escalating. Yeah. Um, and the animalistic way he's just, like, grabbing her face and the the way that her, like, her, like, wet hand on the leather and, like, all of this thing is just, like, oh, it's so, it's all, it's just, like, again, it's pushing his face in it. He can't, he can't escape. He can't go somewhere else. He can't look at the scenery. They're in a car yeah. wash. The only thing going on is his wife having sex with the guy that he wants to have sex with in the back seat. Uh, this is like in the car that yeah. he had a car accident. Like there's so many levels at work here. And again, but again, like the constant cuts to the outside where you just see the mechanical nature of it as well. This is, this is, this is the most sexy scene in this mm-hmm. movie, I would say. Like this is certainly the, the sex is passionate and not sort of cold. Uh, it's, it's sort of it's dangerous and exciting. Dangerous. Yeah, that's the right word. That, I was going to say rough. <laughs> that erotic thriller sex often is. is yeah. Like the, you know, uh, Diane Lane having sex on the stairwell and unfaithful and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Like, uh, I, I do I yeah I liked what he did with um, the two contrasting sex scenes in history of violence like as being character driven as well I remember the last time watching I first time I saw history of violence I had never really seen anything like that or not, didn't even really think about movies on that level yeah. and I remember it just being like this is unbelievable one of the greatest things ever and I remember the last time I saw history of violence it's not as subtle and it's not as uh, it's not as balanced and nuanced and elegant as I think the sex in this movie is. Mm. Um, but oh, it's yeah, been it's, years yeah. and years and years. And I love that he like he's comparing his hand to Vaughn's hand. Like he, even right now, Vaughn is an intermediary. Um, the other thing is that this scene is very much a mirror of the scene when he is in the hospital bed, and Vaughn has uh. become her car crash. 
Like yeah. Vaughn is now before she was trying to get in and now she is tied to his sexuality because she has had this uh, moment uh, that has impacted her the way the car crash did. Well, they're treating it like a trauma. Right, exactly. Um, and it's like, without the context of the rest of the movie, you would see this is the scene where things have gone too far. And again, in the more traditional erotic thriller, this is where they're like, we're in over our heads, we gotta get out. And then it ends with like, you know, them being on the roof of a building and Vaughn I getting pushed wanna, off or something. I, I almost wouldn't have minded if there was no dialogue in this movie. <laughs> You wouldn't have, you can't, I don't think, I don't think you can, but I like information. You go from that. Yeah. From them seeing the car crash in the highway to the car wash. And now this, like it's all silent. That's probably my favorite. Right. Well, yeah. But I mean, I think, I honestly think when you have dialogue that sounds inhuman and when you have dialogue that is just so weird and just doesn't sound like the way people talk and it doesn't, it isn't comfortable the way that like patter in a movie is Yeah, yeah. like, that's almost the same as having no dialogue. Like that's almost, you're the, probably right. Um, I can see that in some way it achieves the same effect. Um, but like at some point I wouldn't mind watching this on the big screen if the music box ever plays it or something. I'm sure at some point there will be a Cronenberg yeah. retrospective where we get to see oh, yeah. crash on the big screen. Oh, I hope so. Um, yeah, I I love the David Lynch retrospective, but there are other directors <laughs> out there. To well, do that with. I, yeah, but the David Lynch retrospective is a license to print money because David Lynch yeah. has a rabid fan base unlike any other. So, oh, I've learned people. There are, are David Lynch bros after me going to all those screenings. I'm yeah, like, I'm telling you, like, like let's the PTA, get drunk and watch Blue Velvet. They're the, they're the PTA bros. Like, it's the yeah. same thing. Uh, it's you know. People probably packed that theater for that I don't know Jack piece of shit that he did for Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> that movie sucks so much. Anyway, we're not talking about that. We're talking about this amazing location with again the cars oh, on yeah, the side. Yeah. Uh in the book, this takes place at a car show, not a showroom. But right. the only the only sort of like if you're talking about structurally, like how this movie is arranged, the only sort of it's not even a misstep. It's the only part that feels a little unelegant to me. Is that uh, it is episodic in that in that way that sometimes it sometimes works sometimes doesn't. I wonder if this scene would have played better earlier in the film. Um, because I'm not I'm not 100 sure like narratively like where where are we now? Because well, that's what I mean. Because Gabrielle, it's almost like the only escalation here is an escalation of. It's not of the characters' fetish. It is of we are building to the set piece that people talk about, which is the like scar sex. And like, what, to be clear, like I was a teenager who liked David Cronenberg movies because they were fucked up. And I was just <laughs> like, man, they're so fucked up. Like yeah. I was not thoughtful about Videodrome. I was like, James Woods got a pussy in his chest and he hides a gun in it. This movie rules. <laughs> sure. And so like this movie was like, there's a lot of boring stuff. And then James Spader fucks a leg scar. Yeah. Um, it, it was weird. And, and so this, in some ways this is a climax because this is the most surrealist, like over the top, like uh sort of bad taste pushing uh sex scene. Yeah. Um I really do want to say the character of Gabrielle is awesome, um, in that uh she is a disabled woman. Um But she refuses to be defined by that. Well, no, and well it's not you know, even necessarily a matter of whether she refuses to. It's like the movie doesn't. Yeah. Because like she she has fetish gear and her, you know, her leg braces and everything are fetishy, but like, so is the way Holly Hunter dresses. So is Vaughn's body and all of his scars. Like mm -hmm. she is this 
sort of, she isn't othered because they are all in the same boat. And before you, we get to this scene, we have now been through all of this with everyone else. And so it's not like she is just like, oh, and then she's like not even a human being. She's just this like total wreckage. It's like, she has the like she has this weird playful thing where she like clearly likes fucking with the car salesman. Yeah, yeah. At this point in the movie, by the way, the only faces we see are the faces of people who are either part of their thing or like have are being uh, against their against their judgment being drawn into their thing. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> apparently, this was a ex- very expensive moment because tearing the seats of cars is not the same as just like ripping up a seat. Because car seats are insanely expensive because all the safety features. So apparently that was like a $40,000 shot yeah. <laughs> to replace that. Wow. Um, but yeah, That's this is wild. this is the seat. And again, I do like that the we do get a different kind of... If we are talking about like him descending into his fetish, this car park is very different and much grungier and much less human. Even that wheel looks like from the future. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I guess this is her car that they're in. Yeah, not really clear about it. Well, I, I, I would assume I guess so I don't, because I'm, of the setup here. Yeah, yeah, the setup. She can drive the car without, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, Such an insane, like, even the score is different. So this this scene caused especially a stir, and there was actually a backlash against the backlash in Crash because a lot of critics were, like, really um, condescending and were, like, sort of, uh, were sort of conflating, like, physical disability with an inability to consent, and they were, like... They were talking about this scene as if, like, you know, Gabrielle couldn't possibly want this herself and that it's, like, you know, insensitive to the disabled. And then disabled people sort of came out and were, like, wrote, you know, letters to the editor and stuff that were, like, actually, we like to fuck, too. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, of course. I mean, and I, this scene was actually cut out of the movie in Korea because apparently in Korea, there, or at the time at least, there was an intense taboo around disabled people uh, being sexualized. Like, it was just considered... Huh completely beyond the pale. So like everything else in the movie stayed uh, again, we get another cunnilingus act in some way <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> with that again, beautifully designed leg scar. The scar is the equal amount of gruesome looking, but also like extremely uh, sexy and vaginal looking. And like the, 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 the line it walks is absolutely incredible. This is the second best uh, disabled sex scene that I've seen in a movie. Can you name the first? Probably when you say it, I'll be like, oh, of course, but I don't know. Monkey shines. Oh, yeah. Monkey, monkey shines. You want to talk about a positive depiction of <laughs> yeah. disabled sex, of like sex yeah, with a physical right. disability. Mm-hmm. Monkey shines, again, gets into the nitty gritty of how you do it. Yeah. So this is the camera girl. I feel like the implication here is that she is kind of the same way that like Holly Hunter's walking around uh, in a trench coat with nothing on underneath at the start of the movie. Like. She's on a different path, but she's also kind of kinky and kind of like she likes public sex and displays and mm-hmm. like showing herself off. And that's why like you see her face. She kind of counts as being part of their thing. Um, apparently, there was more in the movie between James Spader and the camera girl. But Dave Cronenberg is like, oh, these two have way too good of chemistry. That's not what this movie is. So he oh, like wow, really cut out a lot. Yeah. So there was probably like hmm. some dialogue or something. Uh, maybe in rehearsal. I, I don't know if it was ever filmed. There's no deleted scenes on the Blu-ray or anything, but like uh, at a certain point, she was a more developed character. Mm. I love that Vaughn is like this little whimpering. Yeah. You're making it too clean. Like he like, you know, he's like, he, you know, he's, 
He, you know, the previous scene we saw him in, he was like Mr. Like masculine power taking sex kind of guy. And then yeah. this, he's just like sort of squirming underneath mm-hmm. the hand of this woman. Like he's the roles have been reversed. And in the next scene we see he is going to be he's going to bottom for James Spader. Like, yeah, um, getting a tattoo is a unique pain. Uh, David Cronenberg very, uh, 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 can, um, consistently undercuts Vaughn's, uh, mystique <laughs> throughout this movie. And I love it. It gets set up again and then he just breaks it down again. Cause again, the only difference between Vaughn and James is that Vaughn is more committed. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. Yeah. Um, I can't think of any erotic thrillers uh, that are this fearlessly bisexual. Certainly not like male on male. Like, you know, you have, uh, what's her name? Like you have uh, Sharon Stone in, in Basic oh, yeah. Instinct is and bisexual. Bound. But like, yeah, Bound is, I don't oh, know if that's more, bisexual. That's, that's I more lesbian. Lesbians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's true. But, um, but like this is a very, even again for today, this is a very daring scene. I think audiences are very comfortable with uh women loving women. Mm-hmm. They're not comfortable with men loving men. And to this day, you really don't see a lot of explicit man on man sex. Um, and to be fair, this scene as a sex scene is less explicit than any of the previous sex scenes in terms of nudity, um, in terms of like yeah, a we long don't shot see penetration. Yeah. Anything. In terms of like a long shot where you see the positioning of their bodies and stuff, it's done a lot closer. Um, so like in some ways, this, mo- this scene is, uh, you, you, one could one could make the argument that this scene is more timid than the heterosexual encounters. Um, yeah, I would have I would have thought that Vaughn would have gotten extremely rough again, but he doesn't really. Well, no, well he's he's kind of more passive in this, isn't he? He is. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean that he's the bottom. <laughs> yeah, he bottoms in this moment. Yeah. But, so so there's two reasons why it does not bother me. Um, despite, you know, I really would love to see Elias Cody as fully nude. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's a couple of reasons why it doesn't bother me that this scene is a little less graphic. Like one, just, um, emotionally, like this scene is about something different. The scene is about them finally admitting the thing that they have been hovering around. Yeah, and so it is, a, it's more again. character driven than yeah. like the stuff between James and Gabrielle. Um, the other thing is that it's like 1996 and there's just like, there's no way this movie gets released with a sex scene between these two that is shot the way any of the heterosexual sexies are yeah. like, that's just never going to happen in a million years. So even if you, know, if you wanted to be ultimately generous and say like David Cronenberg really wanted this to be more, but he just knew that he would never get his movie released that way. Um, that's true. Like it's just it, like for the time it's pushing a lot of boundaries. But then I think for me, the ultimate reason why I really like that, um, or I, I accept that 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 scene is not as explicit and uh, as graphic as some of the other ones. Like I do think you could watch this movie and walk out of it and not remember that James and uh, Vaughn had sex. I, I think that I happened think to me. The, yeah, yeah. The close up of the face, you can just be like, if you're if you don't have a great imagination and you don't know how anal sex works, you might go like, oh, you know, I. That was just a moment. It doesn't it doesn't leave a vivid image the way a lot of the heterosexual. Yeah, I, th- sex I thought they just kind of made out. Yeah, yeah, no, but Vaughn bottoms for him. But the so for me the biggest reason is that Vaughn tops as well. That wasn't the payoff. Them having intercourse in the car 
was not the ultimate expression of their sexuality for each other. This yeah. is. And in this one, James Bottoms for Vaughn. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is very much a reconfiguration of the sex scene we just saw, except instead of it uh, being a penis and an anus, it's a car and a car. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's interesting. And again, like... Some of these shots of the actual cars when they've been crashed are strangely beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. You know, to where, like, yeah, if you had this up at the Art Institute, I'd be like, oh. I mean, <laughs> yeah, the gynecological instruments in Dead Ringers are yeah. also strangely beautiful, as upsetting as they are. Like, yeah. Uh, David Cronenberg is, you know, not afraid so of to think indulging about, his aesthetic sense. And it's, it's so weird to think about after I had major surgery how many people wanted to see my scar. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, That's funny. I want to see your scar. Well, scar. I, yeah, yeah. I believe. I think scars are sexy for a lot of reasons, right? Scars are sexy because scars are the marks of survivors. Like mm. scar is like here's something I survived. Here is something that you know you can interpret as building character. But yeah, like this is just anal sex again. <laughs> this is just. Oh uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, many a bottom yeah. has felt the way James did right now. Like oh okay okay we're doing this. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, you know, scars. So scars tell a story. Scars, scars are unique. They mark you. They they make you an individual um, in a yeah. way that like you can have the same hairstyle as everyone else. You can have this and that. But like your scar is yours, and like um, it separates you. And it's the same way that like a fucking pickup artist wears a hat with a big feather in it because it singles him out. Yep, like it's yep, the same yep. thing. Like scars are sexy in that way. Um, and then scars are uh, physical. They're textured and like yeah. touching another person's body. Not necessarily everyone who sees your scars touches them, but like their eyes are touching the. They're imagining the texture of exactly, the scar on your yeah. body. Like, yeah, oh, that's I, amazing. So outside of a sort of fictional context in which car crashes are erotic, like scars already are erotic. And so again, this is the the way Cronenberg keeps circling around things that are relatable and do exist. Um, you know, not everyone is going to see Elias Codius's like mangled uh, chest in this movie and get a heart on, but like, yeah. um, in general, like there is already an understood uh, sort of sexual arousal that that sort of circles around scars yeah. and stuff. Well, Ebert, I think, even said in his review, you can replace the their fetish with whatever fetish you have <laughs> and just yeah, absolutely. place it in that context. And I was like, all right, well, absolutely. You know, me personally, I just like to eat 7-Eleven slushies until I vomit, and that's how I do it. And, like, it's basically hey. the same as this movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll eat a whole pizza and get hard. Yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> no, um, that won't happen anymore. I, uh, there's another... Hmm. I do like that in the... Again, this movie kind of teases the more conventional version of itself before like going off on a different conclusion. And this is a scene that if you were scripting out the conventional version of Crash, this is the part where they realize that Vaughn has gone too far and he can't be controlled anymore. And yeah. who they thought was a partner has actually become very dangerous because the game has become real for him. <laughs> um, but this is not them realizing Vaughn has gone too far. This is them like kind of getting turned on that Vaughn's gone too far. Like this, this yeah. scene that happens now is not them panicking because Vaughn has turned predatory and they're not into it. This scene is them being like, it starts with them hungry, you know, like yeah. where's the traffic? Where are the cars? What's going on? Um, there's something kind of spooky about it. I love the way this scene specifically is shot. Like a lot of the scenes are shot around dusk and there's a lot of like heavy blue. Like this whole movie is very cool and has mm -hmm. a lot of like blues and greens and stuff. This, this scene is a lot of really pitch Brown. blacks 
Um, but then you also get these oranges yeah, and the reds orange and, and yellows and there's, it's actually very colorful, but it's also... That's why I said he's like waiting almost like a serial killer. It's you know, also like, like really harsh blacks as well, and it's like built around... The image yeah. is built around highlights. Um, and... Uh, Just knows when they're going to pass. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's like... That look. <laughs> That's like the look he has in Shutter Island or something. <laughs> Just like, oh my God. What is he saying? I don't know. I, if I... Hmm. I maybe should have watched that just that moment a hundred times until I could, you know, lip read. But uh, the other thing that so this is just a beautiful sequence, the way it's like kind of chiaroscuro and like kind of like super dark darks and super bright highlights and stuff. Hmm. Um, the other thing that shooting this scene does is it hides stunt drivers. <laughs> and I'm uh-huh, sure a lot uh-huh. of these takes do not have Elias Codius in that car. Yeah. <laughs> so there is I think there is probably a practical reason as well. Um, when you get when you get the camera attached to the car like this, it's reasonable to assume they're being pulled by a trailer or something, and that the actors are not actually operating the vehicles. But when you get to this scene, you don't see the face because it's probably a stunt driver. Um, but like, do you think these characters want to die though? Because like to me, I always thought they had this death wish. They actually do want to die. I don't know if it's a I don't know if it's a matter of wanting to die. I think it's a matter of death being an acceptable <laughs> acceptable yeah. end result. A fertilizer. Um, it's. Yeah, fertilizing event. Uh, again, um, I think death is a fertilizing event could feel very philosophical, but it also could literally be death is a cum shot. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> like, no, no, no. Like equating the two. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't think I don't think it's necessarily uh, Vaughn has really high minded ideals or whatever. But I think I think I think that they are operating. Uh, upon their sexual impulses and they are not operating upon what fits easiest and most comfortable and most sanely into their lives. Oh, that scream. Now this is a moment where it's like, boy, if this movie had more of a budget, you might've seen that car go over the edge and hit a bus all Michael Bay style. But this this movie doesn't have that budget. I mean, let's let's get real. This is crash. They didn't give this movie $80 million. Um, I'm forgiving of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Especially because it does like, we want to see the crash happen and we're denied it. And so now this is sort of an erotic reveal the Mm -hmm. way she undresses or whatever, like the camera sort of craning over the side of the bridge to reveal the bus is erotic in its own way. I also love that there's a single actor on fire. (laughs) (laughs) I like that one. I mean, anyone who listens to tracks of the damn, no, I'm a big fan of fire stunts and I do like, there's just one stunt man on fire. Mm. Um, Yeah, and if that happened in reality, it'd just be in total shock. Something like that. And things like that happen. Yeah. Ugh. And now this scene sort of plays out out of I don't know, like. Well, the, this is this is this is the uh, the rest oh, wait, of the, the, is this them getting the car or is this the Holly Hunt? Oh, this, this is, is the, the Holly Hunter Gabrielle yeah. uh, or Rosanna Arquette. Um, sex scene. This is like to me. This is. He was talking about, you know, James Dean broke his neck and became immortal. Mm-hmm. Like, Vaughn drove his car off a bridge into a bus and became immortal. Like, he is now this sort of iconographic figure the way that a Jane Mansfield or James Dean is. Right. Um, this, to me, the scene is A, them mourning their friend. This is B, them sort of getting really turned on by his crash car. And C, this is like the equivalent of like when people visit Jim Morrison's grave and leave bottles oh, of whiskey okay. on it. You okay. know what I mean? That like this is, the, this is a tribute. This is, this is a eulogy. Mm. This is, <laughs> <laughs> um, also, 
We haven't had any lesbian action yet. Come on. Let's get some lesbian action at this movie. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. That's probably, it probably was. I like your read on it. I just always thought like, oh, this is kind of out of nowhere, but maybe it isn't. I mean, yeah, that is Vaughn's crash car. And then later, the very next moment, the rest of the movie really centers around this crash car and around these people sort of mythologizing Vaughn. And he does sort of transcend uh, into something else only through death. Um yeah, and part of me always wondered that the rest of them wish they could be Vaughn and like actually uh, die <laughs> in a way. Yeah, yeah. Like there's I, I think some that's right. Sort of, yeah. Again, I, I think I, I think I maybe, yeah. I think I think your instincts are correct as far as their death wish. I think maybe that didn't read right to me because I don't think death is the point, but I think the transcendence mm-hmm. of this is the it's point. A transcendent act. Yeah, I don't know. It's something because even when like. He says maybe the next one. This the is end. David Cronenberg, by the way, doing the voice. Oh of the, yeah, uh, yeah, that's very parking lot attendant voice. <laughs> and now we return to the conversation that James and Vaughn had in the car when they were looking at the. Uh, you know, when he was yeah. talking about his project or whatever, he's like, he wants to get a crash car and get it running again, just enough to get it running. You know, a car mm-hmm. with history, he says. <laughs> and now we know that Vaughn's car has history. And what we have here is basically a recreation of the first uh, sexual encounter that the three of them had together when uh, Vaughn and uh, I forget the name of his wife's character, Catherine, when Vaughn and Catherine showed up at James's work and they all sort of drove and like this is basically a recreation of that sequence. Um, yeah, there. You know, another interesting wrinkle in this movie uh, taking place in Toronto and the way it utilizes the geography is that there aren't like a lot of American car iconography is about the highway. It's about like open road. It's about like just going to 120 because there's not another soul for miles and you're just like on this isolated journey. Sure. Um, all of these like little incidents take place on highways that are circling a city. They aren't going anywhere. They are going in circles. <laughs> there is no destination. Yeah, okay. There's no yeah. implied destination. Um, there's not like landmarks where it's like, Oh yeah. And they drove past that building. And like, like all of mm. these highways look identical to the ones in the previous scenes. And this part where he's driving now looks the same as 45 seconds ago where he was. He is circling. He, that is, that is his sexuality. Yeah. It's just the chase. And there is no destination, and there is no payoff really, except for a brief moment. Hmm. Um, one of my favorite Rodney Dangerfield yeah. favorite Rodney Dangerfield quotes. Uh, not, I don't think, from his act. I think this was something he said to a friend. He said, "You know, sometimes life makes a lot of sense, and then you come." <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think that, I think that could have been the tagline for this movie. Sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I told you I was going to work blue and talk about sex. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Oh, my God. I've been positively filthy during this commentary. That's kind of a filthy movie. Yeah. But, of course, Cronenberg finds it oddly beautiful. Now, the... A lot of Howard Shore's score is this sort of wandering electric guitar, mm-hmm. and the score is kind of ambivalent um, and non-committal in the way that the film is in terms of its refusal to place judgment on these characters and stuff like that. Like the score mirrors that uh, approach perfectly, but 
the whole score isn't like that. There are moments like this where Howard Shore goes to more traditional kind of score that he would do in another David Cronenberg movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think the scene has a very specific point in a way that a lot of it doesn't. Like, I think this is where they were at the beginning of the movie on the balcony. He didn't come. She didn't come. She says, maybe next time, darling. Yeah, that's true. But their sex life has escalated drastically. And I so do think there things, is something. Do you think things are going to get better for them or just continue to. Well, like they're going to continue to. If by. This? If, you mean if by they're going to keep doing this until they die? Then yeah. like if, if you think that's better. I mean, better is a is a judgment <laughs> term. And I don't think David Cronenberg would say things get yeah, better I or guess, worse. I guess you're right. Yeah. These are There's two people. These are two people who are in a marriage together, who have a sex life together, who are on the same page out of what they want from each other. These mm-hmm. are two people. Um, who are once again uh, dr- together, not drifting apart. They're they're running on parallel lines. Um, specifically, yeah. the way she says she didn't orgasm is to say that she is all right. Like I think that's really yeah. that's what he says to Holly Hunter early on too. Yeah, I'm all right. <laughs> um, so like in some ways, it's like their marriage is fucking good like they they had it they hit a rough patch and they navigated it and now we have a happy couple once again um in you know i guess that's what cronenberg is saying you yeah. could even i mean you could even read this as like a return to monogamy you know this is yeah. not this is you know uh holly hunter and and roseanne arquette sort of pair off uh, out elsewhere but like these two seem to now that vaughn is dead he can be an intermediary without actually physically being there and he mm-hmm can sort of uh, mitigate their uh, relationship. Well, the first time I saw this movie, I thought that basically they just like, well, maybe we'll die in the next crash. Yeah. You know, and that's, I guess it depressed me, but. <laughs> well, no, that's also depressing. In yeah. That, like there is no, this, this, this will only escalate until they're both dead. Um, there is no satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they are having really intimate sex. Right. It's, it's passionate and it's emotional. Um, and it's it is it is ambivalent. It is sad. It is happy. It is it is life affirming. It is uh, massively depressing. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's it's just like one of the great All images at the end of a movie. Yeah. Um, and of course, like just this shot right here with the car tipped over and, and them having sex in the on you know on the fucking ditch. It's just like it is just such a perfect summation in a way that like most movies don't get a final image this great. That like really sum up the movie that you just watched. I think we've, I think I've said this on the podcast before, but Cronenberg really knows how to end a movie, and he's always good with his running times. Like, yeah, they don't overstay their welcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Um, I think Videodrome was a compromise, if I'm not mistaken. Like, he didn't necessarily want it to end that way, but it still fit and it still worked. I think he wanted more to that ending, if memory serves from reading an interview about it, but. So uh, that was that was David Cronenberg's crash. That was me sort of explaining why I love it. Um, you I know, like it more. Yeah, I don't think I. I mean, it's it's not a lovable like huggable. It's like like no. endearing movie. Like when people say they don't like Crash, not only do I relate because I was one of them. Like I relate. Now because, you've joined the cult. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, I mean this is yeah, cult following. Um, but uh, I understand because this is not an easy movie to love. Like you, you look at similar films. Like like for me, like Duke of Burgundy is the approachable sort of uh, 
it has it has sort of the transgressive thing. It has the self consciously art house approach. It has, but you I know, care about them. It sort of it does the same thing where it creates its own world, so it sort of short circuits your ability uh, yeah. to to just feel comfortable in like, ah, oh, this is happening in the real place. Like it, it sort of builds it as a metaphor and it makes you see the universality of their relationship. Even if you aren't in an, you know, S and M relationship with a woman, 20 years, your junior <laughs> where, where you make her clean your, uh, uh, panties in a, in a sink full of bubbles. Like, I don't know. Like you still like look at Duke of Burgundy and you go, ah, yes, this is a movie about the struggles of trying to be with another human being, despite the fact that you're both trapped in your own heads with your own desires. And, you can't anticipate that's a relationship yeah that's a relationship and like but that movie also has like a sense of humor and has warmer photography and it's a little more emotive and it's like yeah that's a very approachable you know it's in many ways a different movie than this but it like that is a more approachable version of the kind of thing this is achieving well Um, existence has a lot more humor a lot of more meta things going on a a really insane cast uh, and just really funny things going on and to me it's like more entertaining mm -hmm. than most of Cronenberg's movies and I don't know I I remember when that came out I was just like oh this is the Cronenberg I like yeah but then of course he makes Spider and that's kind of that's really cold and detached and not very that feels lovable. that feels like a real anomaly it is. i haven't seen all of his movies i haven't seen m butterfly I, again i warmed up to that one too spider over time. yeah i don't know so i mean it's 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 possible that even though this is more on the bottom of my, of my list of cronenberg movies that in time it could keep going up mm-hmm. but uh i mean like his new one looks more like crash than anything else so i don't know what to expect yeah and i but i want to see what a cronenberg movie in 2022 is going to be like yeah you know I didn't how like far is da- it going to go i didn't like a dangerous method um yeah. i i have cooled on a history of violence though i think that movie's probably still good i think eastern promises works like as a thriller or whatever but it's not some a movie i have a ton of passion it's not very for. deep no. yeah um i did not see map to the stars but i did really like cosmopolis Maps of the Stars is still my least favorite. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't like Shivers very much. Yeah, uh, I, okay. I think that's it's just okay. a movie where like the budget just fails it. It's just like and Rabbit was okay. Like I think early on he was still struggling to find his voice, and <laughs> then the Brood came and it was like, oh, that's Cronenberg. The uh, Criterion edition of Scanners has his first feature, Stereo, but I haven't seen it. I think I might have seen that, and I can't remember it. That's like that's a very low budget, much more experimental. Have you seen um? The there's a short film that was based on J.G. Ballard's Crash that was directed by a woman. And it's a short film I'll send to you if you haven't seen it yet. I have not. Nightmare Angel. That's okay. what it's called. And it came when? out in the mid-80s? Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it's like a 30-minute version of Crash. Black and white. Very indie. Almost like a Jim Jarmusch movie. All right. Rank the J.G. Ballard adaptations. There's High Rise. Ugh. There's Empire of the Sun. Well, there's em- Crash. Empire of the Sun's my favorite. Yeah. Might be mine, too. Ah... Uh, Crash and Empire of the Sun kind of neck and neck for me. High Rise is a real piece of trash. I hated High Rise, to be honest. That director, I don't know if I'll ever like anything he's done. Boy. Ben Wheatley. Yeah, he, he had a new movie come upward. out last year, and I haven't even watched it because I'm like, eh, I probably won't like it. So maybe Didn't I won't see Didn't he do it. that like terrible uh, uh, Rebecca remake? Oh, yeah, I never saw that either. Should we pause? Because I got to hit the restroom. Are you crazy? Are you out of your mind?
So anyway, that was David Cronenberg's Crash. Um, and now we're going to switch over to Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread, a movie that Jim absolutely loves and a movie that I kind of struggle with. Um, and Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to hear from Jim about like why you know Phantom Thread moves him so, even if the answer is, I don't know. I have a it's blind mysterious. love for Paul Thomas Anderson. That's yeah. all it comes down to. No, um, there's more uh, to it than that, I would think. So we're all going to watch Phantom Thread together and hash that out. Uh, before we can do, you got to get your copy. There's only one cut of Phantom Thread. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to press play, and you're going to see sort of the opening company logos. You're going to see Annapurna Pictures come up. It's like that sort of uh, degraded video feed uh, kind of uh, color separation kind yeah, of a thing. It's right after the focus features yep. one. And then when Annapurna Pictures fades away to black, that's when you're going to want to pause it. Because then you will be synced up with our copy. So after the words Annapurna Pictures fades away and it's just a black screen, you hit pause. You'll be synced up with our copy of Phantom Thread. So go ahead and do that now. Welcome back. All right. So now that you've paused the movie, what's going to happen is Jim is going to say three, two, one, play. And when he says play, I'm going to hit play. You're going to hit play. And then Jim, I, and you, which is definitely grammatically how I should have structured that sentence. (laughs) Jim, I, and you. That's one of the weirdest phrases I've ever heard. Um, We'll all be watching Phantom Thread together. Yeah, we'll all be players. Let's play this movie. Absolutely. (laughs) Three, two, one, play. This masterpiece called Phantom Thread. It's a good title screen. Do you have a yeah. do you have a take on why it's called Phantom Thread? <sighs> it's something I've thought about in the same way. I'm like, why is it called Rick Licorice Pizza? Um, I don't know. You might have to turn it down. I don't know. We'll yeah, see. we'll turn it down a bit. Yeah. No, other one. Uh, Who is she talking to? Doctor Hardy. Okay. This this is happening after the second time she poisons him. And the doctor has come to check in on him. Mm. Uh, Phantom Thread, I believe, might be associated mostly with the mother as when she appears as a phantom at one point. Mm. And that's the Certainly thread that's the been lost in his life. Ambient music that opens the movie like makes me feel like ethereal and ghostly. Yep. And I, I, I can't tell you, like, I actually get goosebumps with this music playing and this sequence, and especially once the, the strings start to swell mm-hmm. and they're going up the stairs in a little bit. Like, um, I saw this twice at the music box, mm, and same. both times I just kind of went, oh my God, I'm in love with this movie already. I think my partner got some brushes for their hair after seeing this <laughs> <laughs> I think that was their big takeaway. It was like, oh man, I bet that feels good to brush your hair like that. Yeah, yeah. The last uh, starring role for Daniel Day-Lewis. and uh, Ever? We'll see. <laughs> I think he might. I don't know. This is a good high note for him to end on if he wants. Filmed in London, whereas like, just the majority of Paul Thomas Anderson's work is known for being Californian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Specifically L.A. But uh, this was um, inspired mainly by the fact that um, when... Paul Thomas Anderson was sick in bed with the flu, I believe. Uh, his wife, Maya Rudolph, gave him this look 
of like, oh, I get to take care of you now, you poor thing. And he, then he started while he was in bed watching things like Rebecca and, and Gaslight and The Passionate Friends by David Lean. And suddenly he's like, I think I have an this idea. This is the moment that yeah. with the little lens flare there. Yep, 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 yep. That's beautiful. It is. I think I think Paul Thomas Anderson is driven by visuals even more than ideas. And I think like this. You stair- are so right. <laughs> I think this staircase is just like absolute Paul Thomas Anderson. Like he's just salivating over all the things he uh-huh, can do uh-huh. with the staircase and the light coming down and the hands all going up and stuff. So yeah, this, this all of, excites me. A lot of women um, sort of exist to serve Woodcock's uh, needs and desires. In this movie, very much, they so. all sort of exist under the lens of Woodcock. Like, yeah. Um, what do you think about how these uh, sort of older uh, laborers sort of play a role in that? They're kind of the uh, behind-the-scenes crew, right? Uh, just helping him out. But I mean, I I imagine that they're all incredibly good at their job, and that's why they're there. And uh, they probably get a lot of thrills out of helping to create these dresses or anything, but we don't get like a sense of their history in the same way. We don't really know a whole lot about Alma either. I definitely also don't see like a sense of thrill. I feel like this is like a very British. Yeah. Like I, you know, like I'm going to work and this is what I do. Satisfaction of doing the job well. And could be, I love this movie because of breakfast. I do love a good breakfast. (laughs) <laughs> There's a lot of emphasis on breakfast and food in this movie. It's kind of wild. I this and it just looks so gorgeous. Like every shot. This is my second least favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie. I, Heart Eight, I think, is just sort of a nothing. But like this hmm. movie is is down there. Um, even with that, is it because he's out of his comfort zone a little bit? Like just like he's I trying think, something. I think that's definitely part of it. Um, yeah, because I mean, Licorice Pizza is almost like a return to yeah. what he does best. Even though I didn't fully connect with that one, I think I think that uh, regardless of of that feeling, there's not a single moment in this movie that isn't absolutely gorgeous. So it was certainly I saw this movie like three additional times in preparing for this uh, commentary track. Yeah, it was not a it was not a great struggle. It certainly it gets a little tedious later on, and uh, I, there's pretty much a moment in the I movie where I think the movie could be ten minutes shorter if I yeah. were to make a you know like well, you could have cut a little bit here and there. But it's clear that he that Reynolds Woodcock is kind of like I don't know he finds these muses <laughs> in, in these unexpected ways, and once they wear out their welcome for him or he, he like they get on they irk him to the point of like you can't interrupt my breakfast this is my routine it's almost like he's ocd well you we, know we do get the feeling uh with just the sort of routine nature of the way his sister discusses dismissing this woman a despite it being like clearly a very upsetting event for her and it clearly being a just a huge uh, sort of emotional deal for her. This is routine mm-hmm. for these two. And we do get the feeling of we have entered this movie on a cycle. And, yeah. And Alma is a cycle breaker. And in that way, this yeah. movie is kind of uh, similar to Crash, the way Crash opens on like we have a cycle and then the cycle is going to be shifted in a radically different By direction. By Vaughn, yeah. That's interesting. And of course, like after I saw the uh, the Mike Lee film another year, I was like, oh, I just want to see Leslie Manville and more stuff, please, because <laughs> she's so great. She's very good. Yeah, she's very good in this too. I mean, I think her character in another year is much richer. But oh, sure, like, sure, sure. Yeah, uh, I, I love Leslie Manville in this movie for sure. Yeah. Um, I uh, my next question is: We see all of these women sort of hovering around Woodcock, 
Um, God, this staircase is like so central to the movie, and yeah, I don't know. And he doesn't shoot it the same way each time. Like he's this house was on the market for two million dollars or something. I was like, hmm, should I start a GoFundMe? <laughs> Maybe I could rob a bank. I don't know. Yeah. Um, do you think that he has a psychosexual relationship with his customers? I don't think it's about sex for Reynolds. Like even with Alma, I don't think they're very. You don't think it's about? I mean, it's not about intercourse. It's not. No, about, there's but it's some... like it's about sex. Right? Like, what, what makes you say it's not about sex? I mean, sex? there's intimacy evolved, and just the act of creating these dresses, certainly you're exposed to these women in a way that normally you don't experience. Well, he's not even a, dressing her, so it's not, I, again, yeah. it's not, I don't mean sex in a traditional sense of intercourse and... But I mean, like in terms. I mean, is of he getting aroused by the dress? This kinky need. I don't even. <laughs> I don't even need it to be. Uh, like because he's a control freak. He's a perfectionist. He's a control freak. Like, like to him, this is his work of art, and it has to be perfect. And but, I think that's what excites him. Is just like every detail, every little thing about this so, has to be so great. So do you view him as like asexual? Honestly, I think so. <laughs> okay. Because I mean. Y- but look at her need. Yeah. This is this for her is a she needs to be seen by him and to like she Well, needs I think his the approval. women want to that. want him I mean want him to adore. I like them. that little gesture he has mm-hmm. there with his little leg out. That's always a great moment. That's a and great the, Daniel Day Lewis touch. Yeah. The jazz piano. This is very period appropriate uh I think it excited me that Paul Thomas Anderson was doing something like this. Even if like these types of movies aren't necessarily my my 100% jam. So what would you like, call like these types of movies? Like when you say like uh, this, you mean like I mean like an Age of Innocence maybe, like a stuffy like period piece. Like some of those don't click with me in this era of like royalty or whatever. <laughs> like cuz all these people that he serves are are rich. Yeah. <laughs> You know, rich British class. Yeah, this is a yeah story of the upper class. Of, yeah, yeah. It's I mean, it's only the fifties. It's not that far back, but it is it is largely consists of people who are part of an older world, mm-hmm. uh, like a pre World War Two uh, kind yeah. of world. Um, so, in some ways, it does have this feeling of a uh, costume drama, like an Age of Innocence. Yeah, but there's there's again like some other worldly element. I mean, certainly just the. Do you think he tarn it? Do you think he scuffed up that mirror so you wouldn't see the reflection of the camera in that, <laughs> on the right side <laughs> of the frame there? Of that, so you could yeah. do that like nice long tracking shot of him mm-hmm. into a mirror without having to digitally remove the camera. Because I it's feel like possible. I feel like Paul Thomas Anderson would just like would be so upset if he had yeah. to d- use computers to oh I, to, yeah. to achieve a shot like that. And it's and it's interesting the way we we sort of framed Vaughn as like a director surrogate of some kind. I think that is a little true to some degree of Daniel Day Lewis in this film. Sure, like he's you know he wants to control things and direct you know make these dresses in the same way a filmmaker would want to direct a film to some degree. But his character is just like completely lost without having a mother figure in his life. Like he talks about it constantly. He's sewn her his mother's hair into his sport coat mm-hmm. too and just like he's kind of haunted by that and that's that's the phantom i guess of the phantom thread it's phantom thread not the phantom thread right <laughs> i i say phantom the phantom thread. thread every time and 
It feels significant to me that there is no the. Mm. Yeah, there, there's there's a lot of that sort of hinting of the dead and and like curses. There's a little thing going on about just if you make a wedding dress or if you touch the wedding dress, then you're going to be cursed and you won't. Like that whole thing is really interesting to me, but I never understood it entirely because clearly he does get married. Uh, like at one point he's sort of saying to Alma when they first meet, which we'll get to is like, I'm just going to be a bachelor forever because I, I make wedding dresses and there's this curse. Going well, I around. mean, we entered this, this shot, by the way, you want to talk about nighttime photography to me, when I walked out of phantom thread, the main thing I took away was this dusk shot, not that specific shot or even this one, the one when he goes up to the gas station, it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in a movie. Mm. Um, but it is that same camera attached to the outside of the car. He drives right here. very fast. Yeah. Maybe he wants to get into a car crash. <laughs> I, th- I do think that there is a something that this movie shares with Crash is that these are very selfish characters and the world exists to the extent that it can serve them. Yeah. And that anyone who step who is outside of their understanding of that is automatically incorrect and, and not worth considering like chic fucking chic like Mm -hmm. the idea that even in the fashion world anyone could ever want anything other than a woodcock dress is just repulsive to him like he's a a profoundly selfish character he has a he has a fear of possibly i don't know just being old (laughs) like or like his designs aren't going to be cool anymore for people or people won't care about him anymore uh and so he but he also realizes he's in this cycle too to some degree later in the film and that's kind of what he sort of realizes with Alma. This is a very interesting meet cute. <laughs> what do you think do you think they have a relationship? Do you think they have ever seen each other before now? No. I disagree. I think he this is a place he Okay, well goes, he's right? been he's been here a lot and like he's, he's a man seen of routine. Her before. Okay, yeah. She's probably- already nervous. I yeah. don't think this is her and her everyday life. I don't think there's anything else in the movie that implies that she's just like, oh, clumsy, whatever. I think she's mm-hmm. nervous because he is, one, very attractive, but more importantly, very rich, very well-known and famous. Yeah. She's red. <laughs> like she's she, yeah. So he's been here a lot, you're saying, and they've obviously interacted before. They had some sort of interaction. He recognizes her. I mean, that could that look could have just been recognizing that she's clumsy and finding yeah. it endearing or whatever. But that doesn't seem like the kind of thing he would find endearing. I think he like enjoys the uh, he's deep in thought he right now. Her. You know what I mean? I don't think he's thinking about breakfast. I think he's thinking about her and them. I think he's thinking about power. He has power over her because mm-hmm. she is uh, she has this sort of anxiety about him. And like later when he takes her order and makes her memorize, like that's a, this is a power game. Yeah. And I could see people being really uncomfortable with his <laughs> like selfishness and uh, confidence in a way. I mean, I'll just like, I'm just going to make you do this thing. And Well, this scene is clearly a flirting scene between two people who are actively flirting. He doesn't take any liberties in this scene. But yeah, he's an asshole. He's a piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's, that's what, but, yeah. Whether like, or not you're comfortable like, with it, I, I don't still, think there's I a still reading don't of this film that's like, and Woodcock, the great man. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, no, no. There's definitely a reading of this film that is Woodcock, the great man, but there's not a reading of Woodcock, the good human. Yeah. Well, I still don't understand his reaction to her making him dinner, like, later in the film. Like, he's almost, like, comically out of control in his reaction to that. 
I should say I like this movie up to this point. There is a specific point in this movie where I go, eh, whatever. And, <laughs> and it kind of loses me and it never gets me back. Mm. Um, but like up to this point, I'm on board for sure. I like this scene a lot. Uh, I yeah. like the chemistry that they have together, which is like. I like yeah. watching them act together, but they very specifically never feel like they're on even footing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he it, shoots them in separate shots. They're not connected until now. Yeah. Well, she's serving him. You know what I mean? Again, oh, yeah, there's still yeah, a power yeah. dynamic. Yeah, that's true. Uh, where he just sort of waits expectingly. Obviously, just the shot of outside is just the light outside is absolutely gorgeous. What's the story of the no director of photography thing with this movie again? Well, as far as I know, he basically served as his own cinematographer. But I mean, obviously, had, had people he done that before? I don't think so. And then has he done it since? I think he did it with Licorice Pizza as well. Oh, okay. I mean, obviously, he had lots of people to help him along the way and like to help him choose film stocks and stuff and uh, the lighting, of course. But I'm pretty sure he served as his own camera operator, yeah. For the hungry boy. It is hard to do a commentary for a movie that I really just want to watch. <laughs> Do, do, do try to have an opinion. I know, no, no, I, I know, I know, I know. But it's like, yeah, I, I definitely work better off of somebody sometimes where it's like, because when I did a commentary that's available on Patreon uh, of me doing the rapture, there were these moments where I'm just like, oh, I, I forgot about this moment. Well, about I want to save her. Talk about that. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. You want to talk about nighttime photography driving? Mm-hmm. This shot also is absolutely astonishing. Yeah, and it's not naturalistic. Like, what are those lights? lights yeah, exactly. Like, that's not what headlights or taillights look like. Right, that's, right. It is. It is. Uh, um, it is such a bold, uh, sort of almost surrealist mm-hmm. choice in a movie that is very naturalistic and not. Yeah. Other than like the appearance of the ghost later, there's really not anything in this movie like that moment. I don't think. Do you understand her attraction towards him besides him him being rich? You mean confident. he's handsome, rich and famous? Like <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean that was also the the, the, the that was the criticism sort of lobbied at like why is Emily Watson attracted to Adam Sandler other than like she says he's cute, you know? And it's like what 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 creates this you know, desire between the two? I don't of them? think Punch Drunk Love is a movie that has like super well considered like like every choice is made for a very specific reason. Punch Drunk Love feels like a um, sort of Rosetta Stone for me for Paul Thomas Anderson. And I just watched it like two days ago. Um, and it actually ended up clarifying this movie along with some other stuff for me, which is that I think Paul Thomas Anderson's work style is extremely chaotic. And I think he makes movies that have these empty spaces that make you want to have very specific interpretations. Hmm. But that's just hmm. not the way he works. And like, to me, the chaos of Punch Drunk Love is what if this happened and then this happened because it did. Like, because that would be like a really surprising, like it feels so seat of its pants, the way it's designed and everything. Um, but specifically, both Emily Mortimer and Adam Sandler are out of their fucking minds. <laughs> <laughs> like Punch They're Drunk, deranged. Uh, yeah. Punch Drunk Love, like this, this is a very this is a much more recognizable, and you might even say, like, for film, a very standard dynamic. Um, where she is aroused by his power. She is aroused by his willingness to sort of 
push personal boundaries and like insist that she take off makeup and like insist that she be who he wants her to be. Like, you know, it is a very, uh, I would say very uh, common sort of sub Dom, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of dynamic that isn't a lot of movies. Um, I'm not uh, trying to like lower my opinion, but I mean, certainly listening to a podcast where, um, you know, a, a woman, film critics just sort of hated this movie because of the fact that Alma is not fully developed or she doesn't have a backstory or she's just so willing to give in to him, you know, especially early on. It's like he's he is kind of a controlling asshole. So what makes that appealing for her, you know? And I, I, I certainly didn't have like a clear yes or no answer to like, well, this is just you know, she considers this romantic, like, in you know, he, obviously she knows who he is. Yeah. Right? Well, like, I, mean, and I, think, his, I think, and his gifts. And that's why he, she goes along with all this, but she is an immigrant. She is an immigrant in rural England as a waitress. Mm-hmm. She probably doesn't have an exciting life. She doesn't have a glamorous life. She probably doesn't have yeah. a really steady life. She probably doesn't, she doesn't have her family here. Yeah. Even she, at the wedding they have that she doesn't have, you never there. see her friends. You never see anything like that. Like, yeah, she has a very simple dress, a very basic dress here for dinner. Um, but and meanwhile, but meanwhile, um, like what was the scene previous to this? His interaction with the with the woman he was dressing like she wants to be seen by him. She wants to be acknowledged by him. He has because of his taste, because of his fastidiousness, because of his reputation of being so exacting and precise. If someone like that looks at you and says you, I approve of you. That is so validating and. That is like that's a really powerful feeling to have. Um, everyone loves to be looked upon and desired and loved. Yeah. But like when you are looked upon and desired by love by someone who doesn't love and desire anything, like that is that is a much inherent inherently that's a uh, a much more flattering thing. You know what I mean? But I started to frame it as like it's less of like a romantic interest on his part and is more of like I want to shape her into something. You know, and I that's mean, that a, is romance for him. I don't, I mean, yeah, and, I and again, he could be an asexual character. I would like, you know, romance might be the incorrect word, but like that is all of his interactions with women, except for his sister and then soon to be her. But like his dynamic with women is he tests them. And if they aren't his mother, then they are unworthy. And then he can do whatever mm. he likes with them. Mm. Um, and they're, they're subjugated to him. And in, there are socially acceptable ways that happens. Like the women who work for him, who are just sort of like, he passes out and tears the dress. So their nights are ruined. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's just, well, look, you're going to do it and you're going to get it out in time. Like, so it's so less like less of a, my fair lady but, thing where it's like, or is but, that, is that the, is that who I'm thinking of? Wait, I'm yeah. Pygmalion. My yeah, fair yeah, lady. Pig, yeah. 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 I don't think he I don't think he's trying to make her a better version of herself. I think he is trying to exert his power. Mm. And again, I view it as he gets off on it. But like if you want to view it as just he enjoys power for its own sake. And, you know, I think that's true. I don't I mean, I don't I think that's a fair interpretation, too. But like I totally there's not a single point in this movie where I don't understand her motivation. Okay, for me personally. And, you know. You know that I'm sure that woman had who said that valid points. There are plenty of women film critics who fucking love this movie too. So oh no no it yeah, can't be, it's not that, just, just a gendered thing. I always like to hear different opinions. Oh yeah yeah, especially when it comes to gender dynamics yeah. and stuff like that. There's stuff that we're just not gonna be you know. But like she may like her thing makes sense. Like he is really handsome. In addition <laughs> to being rich and famous, I'm sure there are a lot of rich and famous fucking people who aren't handsome, especially mm-hmm. in the world of the British upper class with all that fucking inbreeding and stuff. 
Um, that bookshelf is probably the sexiest thing in the movie to me. I fucking... <laughs> God, like, you know, just talking about the production design. Again, I love uh, looking at this movie. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and she's... I, and, fantastic and, but in this movie. This is Vicky the first. Creeps. This scene is the first instance where he begins to see that she might be more than someone he can toy with and dispose. Where she tells him, "You don't get yeah. your staring conscience me lose." Like that's what he's been looking for. He because oh clearly by I, the end for sure he realizes. I, that. I think I think his relationship with Cyril is meant to sort of communicate to the audience what his relationship to his mother was, which is hmm. like he served his mother. He was his. He lived his life in service to his mother. His mother was the top. He was the bottom, or whatever. Again, yeah, uh, yeah. Still, uh, and and again, these are very common Freudian concepts of sexuality, mm-hmm, or whatever. There's nothing. There's nothing particularly earth shattering about that. But even early on, they like sleep in separate bedrooms. I mean, there's one point yeah, where they do. I, again, where they I, do I, I think you can't together. limit sex to just intercourse. Like yeah. sex is a game. Sex is power. Sex is how you relate to people. Yeah. Um. Even in the previous film we watched, which has a lot of intercourse, there's a lot of sex that is not that. Right. Um, and I this do sort think of sums up him too, like just in general, is like why he kind of doesn't want to get too close and to some degree. And this was also a very interesting collaboration in that it wasn't all about Paul Thomas Anderson shaping this story. It was more of a collaborative effort between the two of them, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Thomas Anderson, to where <laughs> as he's writing the screenplay, he's double-checking with Daniel Day-Lewis, as opposed to like at the end of writing the writing process, here's my script, read mm-hmm. it. It was more of like, here's this scene, what do you think? You know, how would you how would you respond to this situation? So this is why I view this movie as sexual because I think Daniel Day-Lewis specific or not Daniel, I think Paul Thomas Anderson very specifically chooses sexually charged imagery and her being undressed in front of him is a very, you know, that is a very sort of uh, sexualized dynamic. So it's not, their power isn't desexualized in the movie, even if it's implied that he doesn't have a high libido. You know what I mean? Like these these scenes are extremely horny. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask you, um, so there's this movie, um, this sort of twisted relationship these two have, Licorice pizza is a pretty much the same thing. Uh, it's not the exact same dynamic. There's a but lot of still, age gaps in these movies. Now that I think about it, it's a movie, but it is. But uh, licorice pizza is very specifically a movie about these two people who have this sort of uh, push pull, playful kind of sexual animosity towards each other, mm-hmm. um, who wield power that they have in different ways towards each other. Um, Punch drunk love is a very strange. Romance, or I, I just, I don't remember Magnolia. I mean, the master, you, it, you don't necessarily need to be sexual, but you still have a very much about the power dynamic and oh, the for push sure, pull for sure. between those two. Um, I don't remember any of the relationships in Inherent Vice or Magnolia enough to know if. Well, there definitely is with um, Shasta and um, Joaquin Phoenix's mm-hmm. character, because like she's, but again, like she's almost like treated like uh, a ghost. In the way that he's haunted by that love that he mm-hmm. had for her, to where some people don't even think like she actually comes back, like that she's actually already dead, which doesn't make sense to me when I've heard that. I was like, huh? I can't say I have a real coherent take on Inherent Vice. Yeah. I kind of just like this every scene in it. Yeah, <laughs> which is oh, sometimes yeah. no, how it sure. works for me. Uh, a lot of that with- supporting cast is phenomenal in that movie. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess this is sensual and, you know, they're, they're being intimate and like, it's enjoyable, but 
he does get a little clinical later on to the point of like it clearly upsets her you know to basically just say you have no breasts it's my decide it's my desire to give you some if i want to right well that's but that's 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 not but that's still horny that's still like him wielding power over yeah, her yeah yeah the power is the sex mhm um okay i mean to me again you know you're i i just think yeah you can't necessarily conflate uh the sex with just like a tender, mm-hmm. you know, glancing touch of, of, of hand and laying fabric and stuff. It's yeah. Like him testing women and him like trying to break them basically, uh, to prove that they can't um, equal his mother. Like this is that scene where suddenly this has been a very good first date. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, like the premiere dra- Like imagine if you went on a date with like a great songwriter and like you, you got back to her place at like 1am and then she was just like looked at you and then she picked up a guitar and then like just started writing a song based on things you had told her during the restaurant. You'd be like, she's oh fucking God. writing a song about me. Yeah. About she, yep, yep, a yep. song, the thing she does about mm-hmm. me. Like the idea that he's like designing, like, a dress around her is like one of the most flattering, like you, you must just feel absolutely incredible. And then the appearance of Cyril of just like the bucket of cold water. It's so good. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Cause like her smile is completely gone. now. Yeah. Yeah. No. And it's like, you said it was about us and the way it was shot before you didn't see her breasts and now she's exposed. Like, uh, it's like now there's a threesome kind of, (laughs) <laughs> well, there, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure, there is a love triangle between these three. Yeah. Um. So yeah, again, up to this point in the movie, I'm loving it. I'm, I'm, I'm all about Phantom mm-hmm. Thread. And certainly, just the way all this is shot is really like the measurements and then cutting to her writing it down. Mm-hmm. It's just sublime. Do you have a do you have a take on the frequent use of mirrors? Hmm. I hadn't really thought of that actually. I don't even uh, know if it's true. It's just something I've noticed in like four different scenes. So hmm. I mean, obviously, when you work in this industry, you're going to have people looking at themselves in the mirror and stuff like that. Oh yeah, no, that would make sense. I don't know. Maybe as we watch this <laughs> film, we'll realize there isn't an inordinate amount of mirrors, and I just made that up. And Daniel Day Lewis actually. Design dresses, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, that's his thing. Yeah. He's like, I, I have to get as involved as possible in the process. I, I personally am extremely skeptical of the artistic value of uh, that that sort of thing. The method acting approach? Or? Yeah. Or like yeah. You're, like the thing you told me about Licorice Pizza, where it's like, she really had to learn how to drive that truck backwards. It's like, why? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Like uh, it's the it's the thing about Dustin Hoffman staying up all night or whatever to be for Marathon Man and then uh, Lawrence Olivia being like, "Have you tried acting?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, like, it's, it's, it's the actor's choice to do that. I yeah, guess, Daniel. You know? I mean, Daniel. Everyone is an, every artist, and Daniel Day Lewis is an artist, as all actors are. Like they, you know, if the method works for them, they shouldn't change it up based on some. You know, I'm just. I think that that sort of method acting. Uh, is overblown and people like to talk in hushed tones about people who do that as mm-hmm, if like that mm-hmm. is the, that is the work of a true artist when like you know I d- no every, every process can be different right like, you know I mean that's one way to approach it and but does that make Jared Leto a better actor by doing it no yeah, no exactly <laughs> he's a fucking clown yeah 
Now, she was only in, I think, one other movie before this called The Chambermaid. And uh, Has she Paul- been in any since? Yeah, she was in Bergman Island. Oh, that's right. Um, old. M. Night Shyamalan's old. So only great films, oh. then. <laughs> well, one is pretty good, and one I can't stand. <laughs> See, like, again, this is like... Oh. She had she had a moment of feeling good, and then Cyril comes in and undercuts it. Because Cyril's yeah. threatened. Oh, yeah. To, like, Cyril, when Cyril is so eager to dismiss these women, mm-hmm. you know, it's not her looking out for Woodcock's best interest. It's, you know, she has skin in the game as well, because this is what her life is, is serving him. So yeah. the power that she gets in this shot, the angle of the shot and like the what, lights, how is she standing? Like, that's so good. And especially the slow motion with this specific mm-hmm. uh, little piano. I don't know what you call it. That, that, that sort of recurring motif. It's just, I mean, here, if you, yeah. if you're curious why beautiful. she is attracted to him, she just spells it out for the audience in this scene. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, in his this eyes. This shot again. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> insane. <laughs> this is so good looking. It's insane. Can you and imagine, again, if, if, if someone said that to you, like, out of his stature of... Mm-hmm. And in that setting, it's perfect. The light just starts to come out from behind the cloud as he says that, like... I like that she's telling him to proceed with caution, but we don't really know why she's saying that. Like, maybe she's been severely hurt or damaged, and we, you know, we don't know about her past. I wonder if that's how actors feel when they're in a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. <laughs> like, suddenly I feel perfect. Paul Thomas Anderson, I don't know. I mean, he seems like a guy who would be very rough to work with just because he has such a specific vision and stuff. But it seems like everyone on the set except for the actors would be feeling that. And it feels like mm. actors are beloved. Like, I oh, don't, yeah. I don't think... I think that's one of his main motivations for think, making movies. Yeah, I don't think you get a punch drunk love unless you see someone who just becomes preoccupied with making Adam Sandler what he always saw Adam Sandler could be. Yeah. You know, like he is like, I. it's like, you know, it's like, I want to no shape dignity. him into my image. Yeah, yeah. Instead of no breasts, it's like, Adam Sandler, you have no dignity, but it's my d- job to give you some. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, or, or on just one hand, too, he just really thought it was funny, and there, like there is a certain virtuoso, uh, virtuosic uh, kind of uh, approach to like I'm going to build this expansive uh, L.A. '70s saga around two people who have not acted. Mm-hmm. It's like she's not there all of a sudden, right? Yeah. So right now, I will say. Sort of my key objection to this movie um, is already starting to uh, take place. It's, it's still I'm still enjoying this movie at this point. My key objection to this movie is there is nothing surprising about it um, until the very end. And that's when it it's like, no, 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 no that's the starting point. You got to keep going. But like this dynamic between the two of them, the idea that it's like the push pull, the hot cold, the idea that like this game between them and how she wants more than he can give her like. That you can see coming from the second that they look at each other in the restaurant. And there's nothing really that challenges that for the rest of the movie until she poisons him. Um, and it's, and it, well, hasn't become, it hasn't become tedious for me at this point. But at yeah. a certain point in the movie, it becomes tedious for me. Um, not just in terms of like, 
I assume that's where the story would go. But like, I've seen other movies that are like this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just an interesting choice of him just not wanting to be intimate with her at that moment. But this, then again, like this is his sex right here. Yeah, right? no, exactly. Yeah. But no one can stand like her. Well, she's able to like unstoppable force versus the immovable object. (laughs) Well, that's what I like too, to some degree. She's fully realized in just how she is in the present moment. I mean, again, we don't know much about her past, but I feel like she has this air of confidence as a result, either of being in this relationship or that's just who she is. And like, to the point of like, I'm you've been toxic, so I'm going to feed you your own toxicity back to you. I mean, we already you. know that a string of women, how many, we don't know exactly, but we already know from the beginning of the film, a string of women have failed this test. They do not have, they are not as willful mm-hmm. as her. Mm-hmm. They break down, and she gets upset too. She gets emotional. It's not that she doesn't express her dissatisfaction or that it, nothing ever bothers her because... But it's like certainly in this they're just moment, not as willful herself. and they're not as uh, creative <laughs> in how they express their will yeah. or how they exert their will over him. Um, so, like, we know that she's willful. See this, like, <laughs> this, like, look at her little fellow like there. Yeah, she loves that she like got him. Upset. I love. I love this moment though. I think this is really funny. <laughs> you think this is funny? I want to be buried in one of your dresses. Oh, yeah. I will say, my bad first experience watching this film was packed theater, <laughs> 70 millimeter PTA bros, which uh, people d- expressed I, a <sighs> disbelief that that was a thing, but it's totally a thing. Um, I don't doubt it. It just makes me mad. <laughs> whatever. It is what it is. I'm like, I'm glad that someone has that following and can, like no one else gets to make the kind of movies that PTA does. And he does because he has a loyal audience. So like, you know, there are means to an end. Licorice pizza doesn't exist if the PTA bros don't exist. So like I'll accept it. But every bit of rudeness, every swear word, every, every time the, uh, sort of gentility and the, uh, politeness like dropped (laughs) so loud it's like people laughing like seeing a Shakespeare play where they like have to let everyone know that they know where the jokes are like where it's just so performative I wonder why why he got so turned on other than those those girls coming up to him and well I was talking through the scene unfortunately so I can't I well now they I know I remember like later on when she like rips the dress off of the the sad drunk woman like they that's, kiss. That they passionately him, kiss. That yeah. turns him on. Yeah. And again, he's not asexual then because he's dragging her up the stairs to have sex with her. So. I think it's because she was turned on by the fact that he's so adored and loved by you know just these random young women. That's another. That scene in particular feels like the taken from Paul Thomas Anderson's life. But mm. if you're saying Daniel Day Lewis, <laughs> if you're saying Daniel Day Lewis, like co like authored this, uh, you know, this movie with him in some way, even if he didn't have like a screenwriting credit, like then that also could be from Daniel Day Lewis's life. Yeah. I mean, you're the greatest actor I've ever seen. <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson is married to Maya Rudolph. So it's not like he's married to someone who isn't famous and has to like, she's mm-hmm. not, 
she's probably not as beloved and respected as him, but in some circles, she's much more famous than he is. Oh, I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure they go plenty of places where he sits by and everyone's like, oh my gosh, SNL, you were so important to me. Yeah, and they don't yeah. even realize who is. And Maya Rudolph mm-hmm. goes, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> I'm happy. You know, what's your name? Yeah. Oh, thank you very much, Emily. Like, <laughs> so, you know, it could be the other way. He could be Alma mm-hmm. uh, in, in certain circles. He is way too much of a dick. <laughs> Just like, come on. Well, yeah. Again, it's like too much of a dick for what? To beloved him? It's like you're not supposed to love this character. He's yeah. not a. I don't think that's important. This is. This is where we have now established the rhythm that we're going to have for pretty much the rest of the movie outside of the two poisonings. Too repetitive which is for you? Scene of, of one of them surprising the other and like them coming closer together, immediately followed by a scene where. She does something to annoy him or he does something to annoy her. Mm. And it's like, this is the whole movie. And it's a long movie. It's not a, you know, it's not a crash, you know, in and out in 96 minutes uh, plus credits movie. Yeah, it's a little over two hours. Yeah. (laughs) I like how both of their faces are half lit. Use a very special Kodak film, if I'm not mistaken, that's not used regularly, I think, nowadays. I I must admit, I'm like sort of woefully uneducated when it comes to the technical details of filmmaking, so. Yeah, that's something I wouldn't mind looking into further. Hmm. So we do talk about the war. We do talk about yeah, rescuing little, little from hints. the war. Yeah, there's little hints there. Yeah, this whole this sequence reminds me of the master with uh, Joaquin Phoenix taking pictures. Just like going, oh my god, the lighting, everything is so perfect about these shots. They're so amazing. It's interesting, though, because um, former guest who was on, just on the Todd Haynes episode, Sharon, she absolutely loves everything about the master and is very indifferent to this one. Yeah. So I think it's like... Has, has she... We haven't had like a full conversation about it yeah. to actually go deep into it, but I just find that interesting because the master was one of the first Paul Thomas Anderson movies, especially on first viewing, was like, huh, I didn't entirely get that, or I at least didn't connect with everything about it either when i first saw the master i was definitely in a everything i don't understand about paul thomas anderson movies is him being too smart for me kind of approach and i, I no know. longer feel that way no i don't yeah I, I don't think that's see we had the moment of her like feeling beautiful and you know in that in the dress and the idyllic uh sort of photo shoot thing and then you get him being cold again yeah but here comes cyril to the rescue and then, and then Cyril comes in and goes, bitch, you don't know. <laughs> like that, that's like, that's like, I know what he needs. We've had half a dozen scenes like this already in the movie, you know, but you gotta love this sequence. Oh, it's so beautifully shot. I mean, that's, I guess that's what it comes down to for, for a lot of the movie. Yeah. It's just, I'm in awe of just it on a technical level and yeah. how it looks and how yeah. it feels. And yeah, I think as an aesthetic it's experience, it's. Kind of yeah. hard to argue. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
It's just yeah. The dresses she wears and just the choice to follow her and then him looking through the keyhole is total Hitchcock. <laughs> is that Hitchcock? Well, I guess. Maybe not. Maybe it's just the, like just that choice, I guess, always makes me think of uh like that's the first thing I learned when I studied film in high school. That shot that we the just The voyeuristic thing. That that shot that uh we just watched to me is like that is to me like one of the key things about this movie is that it's like I think Paul Thomas Anderson gets really energized and excited at the idea of she starts in this room. She walks through the hallway. She ends up in that room. We follow her the whole time. The lighting shifts. We don't even know exactly where she is until she's in the mm-hmm. room in front of everybody. Like she's really likes that he's, he's watching her. Yeah, but it's just, yeah, I, to me, I think it's more about the camera work than it is about the dynamic between the characters. Um, I think obviously Paul Thomas Anderson is a much more gifted visualist than David Cronenberg, but I do think every visual choice made in crash is driven by the characters and their relationships to the world and each other. Hmm. And I do think a lot of this movie is driven by Paul Thomas Anderson, just getting really excited at the idea of like, he's down there and she's up on the stairs yeah. and he's looking up at her and knows that this is going to go bad. And that excites me too. Yeah. <laughs> it works on multiple levels then. Like when I watch one of his movies and I go, Oh, that's such a beautiful moment or shot or choice. Yeah. So to me, that is why I almost always prefer the funny Paul Thomas Anderson movies to the not funny ones. And again, the PTA bros loud guffawing aside, there are plenty of people who find this a very funny movie. Um, I'm not one of them. Um, it's to me, if a movie is funny, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it works or not, or if it fits the characters or not. I'm just enjoying the whole movie because mm-hmm. it's funny. Like punch on glove is fucking hilarious. It doesn't need to have a deeper meaning, but like, when Barry goes in and he's wearing the suit and then the next day Louise Guzman's yep. wearing a suit. It's just so funny. It's yeah. just, and it doesn't need to be like, ah, oh, because that character represents it's like, no, it's just a really funny, amusing touch. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, inherent vice is full of just like that scene is a hoot and a half. And the fact that this whole movie doesn't really work as a exploration of really anything at all uh, for me, like doesn't matter because I'm just really enjoying the whole thing. This movie, I don't find funny and, the humor there's moments I think are very funny. I think, I think, I think humor is a good way to bind a chaotic film because chaos is very productive for comedy. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's very unproductive in this film. I think, um, yeah. In an interview, Paul Thomas Anderson mentioned like the sort of mental, emotional crash that you have, after you've made a movie. Sure. And you yeah. kind of fall into this slump, yeah. this depression of like, what should I do now? That's you the know? best moment in uh, Purple Rain. Is mm. at the end when the kid does the <laughs> concert, he just like runs outside and he's like basically near tears in the alley. Mm-hmm. And he just has this moment where he's like, what the fuck? Yeah. And then, he, and then he hears them cheering his name and he's like, okay, okay, no, I'm back. All right. And then he goes and he does, uh, I think I would die for you. Yeah. There have been times where I've hung out with friends or I do a podcast and then afterwards I'm like, I'm sad now. <laughs> well, I mean, my podcast is nothing but like just hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of preparation and stuff like that. And because I don't construct my commentaries, I do them live. I don't like construct them bit by bit the way a lot of like professional ones do. Mm. Like it is a I'm building up to the day of the performance here is my performance. Yeah. It's like a stand-up That's the routine. best performance I'm going to get. It's taken. It's locked. I release it. I'm massively depressed. What a fucking waste of energy. This is all garbage. I never did anything useful. Blah, 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 blah. 
Like, yeah, yeah. I totally relate yeah. to this. Yeah. Do you remember Kanji? Not Kanji. Manji? Manji, yeah. We watched that. I forgot about it. I should watch that again sometime. That movie, that movie rules. I forget yeah. the name of the director, Japanese director who did like Blind Beast. Um, also, that a, was another birthday gift. I remember, like, uh, yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. But, but specifically, that's framed by the main character going to a psychiatrist and telling the story. Yeah, and that was what made me connect. Also, that's yes, like a movie yes, about yes. a psychosexual power dynamic and love triangle sort of thing. But. Mm-hmm. People always laugh at this coming at this line coming up. Well, it's a good line. I don't think it's particularly <laughs> funny, but it's it's a good line. Like yeah. it's it's a good moment of inspiration. And now she's like, hmm. I have to get I have to get some some mushrooms here, and I don't know where her idea to essentially just poison him is really interesting to me because like like there's that whole unfortunate. Uh, psychological condition, uh, you know, where Munchausen by proxy, where it's like, I got to keep this person sick so they'll depend on me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, really, yeah. I think that is what's going on here. Yeah. Um, it's not a keep the person sick. It's a when he steps out of line, this is how I put him in check. But yeah. 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 Same thing. <laughs> Buddha. So mm. I do think this part of the movie is like is starting a bit to of a, get yeah a little slumpy, but maybe that movie has not lost me yet. Yeah, I have a beer in front of me. I'm gonna crack the beer open at the moment where. Ooh, the movie this is me. exciting. Yeah, I wonder when it is. It's probably the dinner scene. That's my guess. Oh, it's now. Okay. I think I got to remember if this is. <laughs> Music's great, though. Ah, oh, Johnny Greenwood. Who knew? Someone. I mean, I mean, I don't know. It's like he's only part of the most acclaimed <laughs> rock band of all time. Yeah, like. yeah. No, not yet. It's just, it's interesting to me that John Bryan's kind of like disappeared. Yeah, like he's not doing Paul Thomas Anderson movies anymore, and I certainly haven't heard of him in a long time isn't he still producing like records and stuff i would think he's yeah i would think he's still involved with music it's just i do like the introduction of this scene you don't even realize he's in the room <laughs> yeah you you think that she's talking to alma like and it's like, of course she's not talking to alma why would she invite alma to her wedding mm-hmm. um i do that yeah. that shift of like where they stand it's like they're equals staring at each other and then it's like no you have been put in your place these two are talking as if Alma doesn't exist. Like that's a yeah. good little uh, flip there. That's a well well constructed scene. Uh, it's expositional, it w- which like this movie doesn't have a lot of exposition. It doesn't need a lot of exposition. But like slipping the exposition in a scene like this, where you also are getting that little great character moment, I think that's really good. Here we have the great Harry and Sansom Harris. Who's that? Very memorable in Licorice Pizza as the talent agent. Oh right, yeah, she's great in that. Yeah. I forgot. She's crazy in this too. I think I forgot to write down the name, but she this character that she plays, Barbara Rose, is inspired by a real life person. Okay. And I can't remember who that is, but basically she had like seven husbands and was never happy with herself. So you want, you want to talk about a, a, a part of the movie? Like I was already starting to be like, I don't know about this. You want to talk about like an audience really turning me off of a movie? Oh man, did the audience of this movie hate this fat woman? <laughs> 
Like, oh. Where they were just like laughing at her the whole, like every single moment. Like she's a really sad character. Yeah, that's what I thought. And the <laughs> the audience was fully behind Woodcock and Alma this entire part, which is like, I mm. like that Woodcock and Alma are pieces of shit. Um, like I think that just functions well to, again, put a little bit of separation, uh, hypothetically, between yeah. the audience and mm-hmm. them and like let them think more objectively about these characters because they are just being so relentlessly cruel. Yeah. Um, and in fact that their sex is built around the, this cruelty like that is the thing they share um yeah i think that's i think that's but like but him getting annoyed at her angry. him getting annoyed at her and her like barely holding it together that her self-loathing like yeah. they thought it was so funny and again it's just it's not necessarily i mean her even facial reactions i guess can be considered well no funny. it's just anything that is not polite and upset they just like they just took it as an indication that this is where I'm supposed to be laughing because this means I appreciate Paul Thomas Anderson. It's just, it's a performative thing. Um, and it's very irritating. I remember feeling a little uncomfortable in the first screening of this where people laughed at things that I didn't think were funny. And this might've might've been one of those. Yeah. She's very good. I, I, undeniably, I didn't realize this was the same actor. Is she British or American? I think she's American. Okay. Yeah. So here this we get here really we get the first here's we get the clearest indication of Alma's backstory. It's like a blink and you miss it moment. She looks very angry. Well, I think she sees that she's upsetting Woodcock mm. and she is Oh, yeah, yeah. But she's also like concocting a plan mm-hmm. in, t- in terms of like, this is a Cyril is insisting that he have dealings with her. It's insanity. <laughs> See, there uh-huh. we go. Her real little uh, reaction hmm. to Jews, yeah. visas, Jews, visas. <laughs> so she's concocting a plan. Like she just sees an opportunity to like use her as leverage against Cyril to like Cyril is the one who's making him go to this wedding. So she can be the one, the good guy. Yeah. That is like, that's what's going on here. Um, yeah, I guess people find this moment really funny, but right. Exactly. Like it's, it's it's like, it's, and the music is not like playing it for lab. Like it's, 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 she's just an incredibly sad human being. But she, but it's again, I like this. I like that they're cool because I think it's like, this is an indication of, I, we already knew that Woodcock is a piece of shit who doesn't really care about anyone other than himself. But like, we see how willful Alma is and what lengths she will go to to get what she wants by seeing her. We have not really seen her be So they cool are a good or, couple together. And that's kind of what it ultimately comes down right, to. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like, this is, but it's like, they're a good couple not because she brings out the best in him, but because he brings out the worst in her. <laughs> See, she's being manipulative right now. Yeah. I don't think she's upset. Hmm. I, th- I think I think that por- whole previous scene existed so we could watch her concoct this performance. Oh, yeah. I guess I never framed it that way. I always took it at face value, but yeah, maybe. Uh... Because when he was upset, when he was upset after the fashion show, she's like, I'll drive. Like, that was an opportunity for her. 
yeah. to become the mother, which she has already grokked. Like that is that is the dynamic where I have power. Right, is where he's a fussy baby and I get to be the mother. Mm-hmm. And now he's being a fussy baby, so she takes advantage of the opportunity. Right. Yeah, and that's where it all started for for Paul Thomas Anderson is like. Oh, I'm being a fussy baby, but this this amazing woman is taking care of me, and that feels good. <laughs> it's but it's like he was watching these movies too, where there was these manipulative dynamics and things going on, and even poison and, and for, from one movie. We're just watching the movie at this point, but sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. about- <laughs> I know this whole moment is, uh, it's uncomfortable. But yeah. Yet, you know. And again, this whole thing, like just uproarious laughter in the theater. And that's, I, that's why I saw it a second time. Cause I even at the time recognized like, all right, that was a bad audience. Like those people, like fuck those people. Yeah. Um, and so, but even the second time I still found my main problem with it being like, it's pretty predictable and unsurprising and, and repetitive. Mm-hmm. Um, but at this point, the repetition has not bothered me. Um, yeah. I guess it never I do, does I, for me. I do but. find that I do find their dynamic compelling. And even if, even if it's still a little loop, I think Paul Thomas Anderson is, has consistently found each way to make scene work like this little, like sanctimonious reaction. <laughs> like she's not part of the house of Woodcock. No one knows who the fuck she is. Like later yeah. on in the movie, someone's like, who are you? And she's like, I live here. <laughs> like, right. Like that sanctimony is totally for the benefit of him. And the fact that and he like, loves, and that. the fact that they have this like little meat cute in front of the shop window of after this, like act of cruelty is like such a great moment. It's like, it is something like out of David Cronenberg's crash, like the, um, the shared collective experience. Of, right. Like, yeah. Or even just, just, or even just like the callousness of mm-hmm. the photo shoot at the, at the traffic accident. You know, it's like, it's that thing where it's like kind of shocking and upsetting unless you're a piece of shit who just like goes, yeah, fuck her. But he doesn't whatever. say it back though. No, see, and again, like <laughs> they're hot and then they're cold. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she's feeling good about what happened and now she's outside again. It's her him at zero. Yeah. I think it's, it's basically everything. I mean, like certainly these, these actors, the cinematography, the music, all of it sort of carries me through it. Yeah. Even if it's a little repetitive, I can understand that. Uh, Now I want some breakfast. What do you think she's thinking right now? Hmm. I I mean, it's hard to tell. I think she feels detached from him and misses that, you know, intimacy they experienced last night. So maybe she realizes like, oh, I have to engage in cruel acts to keep him <laughs> engaged with so me. So you you're so you're reading guilt. Yeah. Yeah, to some degree. Yeah, I can see That's that. Funny. I do, not at all. I don't think Alma I think Alma is going to get what she wants, however she's going to get it, and I don't think she is a good well, person. Well, I think this this, this whole well, this whole moment too is like, I feel threatened. You know, this the the the, the princess that shows up. Like, sure, yeah, yeah, and look, she's just like one of a line of yeah women, but like, 
he was being sweet to her. Like he he made sure to like look up and go, "Do you want some porridge?" Like yeah. he doesn't even acknowledge she exists or most most of the time at breakfast or whatever. It's almost like an audition scene between director and actor. <laughs> it's like, uh, how would you want me to play this scene? Yeah, again, she's a little lost here. Like she feels like, uh, she's getting all the attention. I, I, I need to get back to that somehow. And she's like, in this moment, she's like, I matter. Listen, look at, I live here, you know? things to say and then suddenly just walk away <laughs> i mean i think she, all those moments like in some of his movies where i'm like oh that's a weird thing to say <laughs> well that no i mean that that makes sense to me it's because she was treated like she was a servant yeah and you know i'm not a servant is what right, she's saying right, in that moment. Right. and so now she's thinking to herself well how can i be appreciated again what the oh okay like her decision to make dinner for him the second she says this. You know exactly how it's going to go. There's not a single shred <laughs> of of suspense or tension. You instantly know how this is going to go. There's no version of this movie in any universe where she makes him dinner in a scene and then the scene ends up being that he loves dinner and then that's how the movie <laughs> proceeds. We've only seen... Well, even Cyril knows it. Right. And yet, this sequence is so dragged out. It, I, I enjoy watching those two actors together in that scene. I think some of it might have been improvised, too. Like, like, they're just going off the cuff together. Like, they're trying to be a bickering couple in that moment. Because, uh, you know, it's never about asparagus when you're in an argument with somebody. It's about something else, you know? So I think that I, I enjoyed watching that scene play out. But it's like... It's not new information. I don't know if, yeah, it's no, the I, same I, thing that we've seen. Right. I wouldn't say it's adding more to the story or the characters necessarily. I think but it's... There, but like when you think about like the pace of this movie, you know, we're really clipping along. It's like a lot of brief scenes and everything. And then the mm -hmm. movie really stops and showcases this sequence. Yeah. Why do you think this scene is important? Um... I guess to emphasize like the fact that she wants to have control or at least uh, allow for a romantic gesture, even like I, th it's surprising to me that she doesn't know, yeah, that how this is going to turn out. But I think her actually making the effort to try is something that she's willing to do, and 
I mean, at the same time, maybe it's not exciting for us because we do know what's going to happen. We do know how he's going to react to things. But he certainly has, like, very strange and comical reactions. Like, the whole, are you a spy? Are you here? To, like, I find that funny. You know, I was like, do you have a gun? <laughs> like, just that whole, like, his, some of his responses in this scene are really, I don't know, odd to me. Best part of the scene is this shot coming up. <laughs> <laughs> of him walking up the stairs? No, of him looking up. Yeah. At her. And just him, not only does the audience know, he knows exactly how the rest of the night's going to go. Mm-hmm. There is this resigned. Again, doesn't say it back. <laughs> that shot of him looking up. Yeah. Maybe she's just a little stubborn. Like she actually thinks like I maybe I can try and break him out of this cycle of control by doing this. You know. I mean, I think we know that's I, not going to work, but maybe she I thinks feel she like can. If and then, look, when she and then when he this, when he lowers his head and his eyes go into the dark and you know exactly, but it's like he's hot. He you see a little twitch of the face or whatever. <laughs> this that shot is fucking incredible. I think what if this was sequenced in a way that this came before the wedding dress scene, um, in yeah. such that like this failing leads to her taking cruelty because we already know what works mm-hmm. because she just did it. And now she's doing something that isn't like she has already she has already learned and slotted herself into the dynamic and understands. That's a good point. Like, and now we have this sequence where it's like she has amnesia about the man that she has been living with for however many however long. Hmm. Like it's not like he hides who he is. It's not like he seems like such a nice guy until this sequence. Like yeah, this is the most be... predictable reaction. Yeah. But. Maybe she thinks that to some degree like this could work. Well, no, she clearly I, does. But I'm just saying like, I don't, I think that's you know, poor writing that she, I don't like, believe that the character would. Hmm. I mean, that's how it's written, but yeah. <laughs> He's coming to dinner in pajamas and like a little sport. coat. <laughs> it's clearly he doesn't care. Like, yeah. I don't know. Like some people, you know, like let's say you had a really bad day, but, you know, your partner has made you this amazing meal or something. You still act like, oh, well, that was nice. Thank you for doing this. You know, I mean, most people would act that way, but he certainly doesn't. Right. But you wouldn't think he would act that way if you had spent any time with him. Mm. You know, it's a good scene. You know, it's a good scene in a movie that is that uh, dynamic. Patterson. When he's eating her terrible food and he's oh. just like drinking all that water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That seems so good. <laughs> anyway. First, I thought you said Paddington. But Paddington. Yeah. And marmalade. Mm. Fucking incredible. Yeah. I like some marmalade. <laughs> I like a jam sandwich. Yeah. I like not to see my parents in the jungle. Not strawberry. Strawberry. I mean, this is like this. Also, the scene where you like think, why, why was, why is she sticking around with this asshole? If he's gonna act like this, maybe that's supposed to be interesting. Like just the fact that she is sticking around. I mean, is it unconditional love? Like there are some people that stay with assholes 
just because they love right. them. And also, it's like, oh, this is 1950s yeah. uh, England, and she is an immigrant without a lot of money. Like, it's not like she has some great... Uh, mm-hmm. you know, other life that, and all these other opportunities that, you know, in, in much more lenient circumstances, a lot of people like forget men, women, like a lot of people, you know, try to make it work because the unknown of leaving it behind and starting something new is scary and stuff. So like, yeah. I, that makes sense to me that she doesn't leave. Obviously there is something there that can work. She has already experienced the the peak of what she can experience in terms of, uh, him looking at her adoringly and all of that stuff. So she doesn't want to leave all that behind. Yeah. Maybe this is an indulgent moment for Paul Thomas Anderson to just be like, I just want to watch these two actors go at it. Yeah. And I'd be the same way. Sure. I think, I think that's, I think that's the best, <laughs> I think that's the best <laughs> interpretation yet is that Paul Thomas Anderson never figured out a good reason for this to exist, but just wanted to have a knockdown drag out confrontation. So he did it. Yeah. I mean, again, like, I remember certainly in two instances with uh, having, when I appeared on the Cinecast with Matt Gamble, he, he would, like, tear Paul Thomas Anderson apart for choices like that. Like, again, you know, I, that I, was, like, I, why Punch Drunk Love was so illuminating to me, because I was just like, oh, he's just chaotic. Like, he just does things because something compels him. He just, he's going to do that thing where the camera pushes into Mark Wahlberg's face and Mark Wahlberg gets kind of catatonic. Like, it becomes oh, the idea. So good. Well, the idea strikes him and he's like, I should like, this is exciting. I'm going to follow it. I don't necessarily have a reason. And I think I don't necessarily have a reason works really well in movies that are like purposefully shaggy and funny and like surprising in the way mm-hmm. that movies like licorice pizza and boogie nights and inherent you know, vice, inherent vice yeah. are. Yeah. I think it works way less in like very austere uh, movies that are like, that are more serious and that are hinting at like some grander ambition mm-hmm. the way that especially the master but to an extent this film uh does yeah <laughs> this is the longest is, scene in the movie it is so far yeah it might be the longest scene in the movie period but it's certainly it's, the longest it feels scene in the like movie. it yeah <laughs> so when you're like, oh yeah, I think this is a funny movie. You think you do think his specific some of the things are... he says are ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't say it's like laugh out loud hysterical, but just like, why would you say that? It's so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> That's the yeah, one I like that, that I like actually that. digs into yeah. his character a little bit, mm-hmm. which is he is a coward. He has yeah. never broken up with a woman. Yeah, he's spineless. <laughs> he will say whatever the fuck is on his mind, but he is a coward. Yeah. And the rules of polite society, especially in the world of the upper class and everything, mm-hmm. say like mean that he doesn't ever get called out directly because it is that sort of British civility sort of a thing. Yeah. He doesn't get confronted like this, so he just sort of shuts down and then starts being a child because Yeah, I don't know how how young he was when his mother died, but maybe it's just like this he's <laughs> he doesn't know social cues. He certainly doesn't know how to act properly in a relationship, so this is how he 
basically regresses back to being a child yeah. and having these yeah for sure you know, ridiculous reactions to things. <laughs> That's the funniest part of the scene to me. Yeah. <laughs> See, he 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 needs it to be her that chooses to leave because he can't be mm-hmm. do that. He's he, he's he not is, very assertive in that way. Like, I mean, he's he's just kind of being an asshole as like a defense mechanism. I think he's like just that. scared. I think he is just like a scared little boy, and like he needs yeah. he needs he needs things to happen to him so it's not his fault and he doesn't have to confront who he is <laughs> you know so like he needs Cyril to do it and then he needs to sort of like look away as if he didn't even realize that she did it and not you know like yeah and then he needs to be poisoned i guess <laughs> which is just so strange we when we get to that moment it's just i mean we're getting there right yeah. isn't this it's yeah So to uh, me, this is the this is like I really didn't like that last sequence. It's like so long and so like just foregone conclusion. But like if that's what gets us to the part of the movie that's interesting, which is the poisoning, then I'm like, all right, okay, cool, let's do it. Yeah. The issue is nothing develops past this moment of the film. I mean, other than him, at this point, she. He doesn't know what's what right at this doing. point. He slips it into her. He, she slips it into his tea. Um. So she is poisoning him unknowingly, mm-hmm. and then the the difference that happens at the end of the movie is that he knowingly takes it. He understands that he needs discipline. He needs his mommy to punish him. Yeah, and that's how it's going to happen. Um. That that is the only development that happens in the next. However, let me. How do you see how much of the movie is left? Hit the hit the button on this remote. <laughs> I think I'm hitting the right one. Yes. No. Oh wait. Oh, it's yeah. That's right. It's, it's not, not a Blu-ray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, that's fine. Uh, well, you I can think, do it. I think there's another way to do it. All right, hold on. We got a little Apple TV oh. remote here. Oh dear. Fifty-seven minutes. So we have an hour left, and one thing is going to happen, <laughs> <laughs> or two things are going to happen. He's going to be poisoned once. He's going to be poisoned again. Yeah. So that is that is my main objection to this film. Okay. Which I can accept and understand. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes when I'm just along for the ride, yeah. it doesn't feel tedious. I think another thing is that I find 70s LA like just a really fucking cool vibe to hang out in. I find 1990s LA or, mm-hmm. you know, the mm-hmm. LA of Punch Drunk Love, which is 03 LA. Like I find that just like a really cool setting that I really enjoy. And I don't find this world particularly... Like, the cinematography itself is beautiful. I'm not really energized by the fashions and the oh, art yeah, design and yeah. stuff of this. It's, well, that, that makes complete sense, and that's, you know... So, like, I don't really vibe, uh, just vibe hanging out in this movie the way I just vibe hanging out in Heron Vice. I think The Age of Innocence might be another example of me just being amazed by the technical yeah wizardry of Scorsese. I gotta that. see Age of Innocence again. I really didn't like it the first time I watched it, but it was also one of those things where... Literally every single scene, I couldn't even figure out why anything was happening or like yeah. what was compelling. I found it so inert that it was just clearly an example of me not getting it as opposed to this movie where I have a pretty clear idea of why I don't like it. 
So I mean, Age of Innocence, I don't, I don't I even see again. strongly love movies that would take place in this time and place mm-hmm. necessarily. Or and certainly not like, like if this was a lower class. Like I actually really love post post war England, but lower mm. class post war England I find fascinating. Yeah. This world, yeah, might as well be nineteenth century. Yeah, but it's it's interesting to me when there's outliers or moments like. Like I didn't, I th- I, w- I thought for sure I'm gonna be I'm not gonna enjoy the Green Knight because it's a fantasy kind of a mm. s- story or sure. even the Northman. I was like, nah, I don't know. But then the directors do something interesting with it. You know, that's 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 kind of what I wind up gravitating towards is the overall like uh, effect of what the, the director is doing and not necessarily making it conventional. Is it is so for you this movie being an outlier? Is it purely just the level of craft in the cinematography? I and think acting? so. I think so. You know, I think the it, acting, there's not the a music, specific oh, like choice he makes in, in terms of like this movie takes a left. There's no frogs falling out of the sky, but I it's mean, just that it is exceedingly beautiful and well acted. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I think that's a huge reason. I mean, certainly the big reveal towards the end. I see it and I do get goosebumps, and I can't explain why. It just like. Maybe all the elements are coming together in a way with that su- surprise of like, oh, he's okay with this. All right. I don't know. Like to me, when, even when I first saw him, like, holy shit, that's weird. And sometimes like that, like a director, my second favorite director is David Lynch. And how many times do I watch his movies and go, holy shit, what a weird choice to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and to me, like maybe that just is enough to get me excited. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for sure. Like, even if the choices don't always make sense, I don't understand the David Bowie thing in Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, but I just find it fascinating that he decides to do that. Yeah. And I think, like, there's there's an emotional core, especially when, you know, his mother appears soon, and that does get to me a little bit. Like on a personal level. Yeah, yeah. You know, just like, oh, what if my dad appeared and if I was dying of mushrooms, you know? <laughs> like, I'm able to, like, recontextualize things sometimes like that. Uh, but. I, so you told me the actual origin of this movie, which is Paul Thomas Anderson being sick and my Rudolph taking care of him or whatever. If you told me the origin of this movie was that Paul Thomas Anderson was in a house that had this exact staircase and he's like, I got to make a movie about a staircase. <laughs> I would believe you. I think that I'd like, I don't That's know why, takes, but yeah. for me, that fucking staircase that we even see now in the background of this, of this room yeah. is like, that is the movie. Mm-hmm. I think some people find this funny. Like she's just refusing to believe what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> That's a funny moment. Yeah. What was the moment I saw in uh I was in I was in a hotel room and there uh No Country for Old Men was on. The uh woman uh, who runs the motel. Uh she died recently. Oh yeah, I think I heard about that. But does that that little that little moment where she's like but it's got a double bed. <laughs> and then it immediately cuts to the next scene. The, where's your polish from? From a shoe. Cut. <laughs> next scene. Very funny. Yeah. Like just th- there's out of left field choices that some directors make that I guess 
I don't know for one reason or another I find funny or interesting yeah. or just I mean, unusual well, that's, a, that's, or, that's the thing I'm talking about with like Paul Thomas Anderson's like chaotic nature is that like um I mean I is that I, I think he's very good at those moments. I turned into a PTA bro uh with Magnolia when the frogs fell out of the sky in yeah. the theater. Like I literally like it was a very similar to the 25th hour response I had when I saw Spike Lee's montage. Uh-huh. Where I just went, I can't control it. I, I I love it. I I don't know why I'm responding this way. I have to let it out. I think I think if if there's ever been animosity between me and you, it is driven by my jealousy of your ability to feel that strongly, <laughs> which I do not. <laughs> I never once you... in a movie theater have felt the urge to stand up and cheer. And I saw like I've I've had some fucking incredible movie experiences. Like I just do not experience pleasure on that level. <laughs> Well, I think you articulated very well what any opinion that you have on a movie. Sometimes I'm more just like I just feel it and I don't know why, you yeah. know. And that's I I certainly admire your ability to do full length commentaries and and you know make them articulate and interesting. Uh, thank you. I I couldn't do this alone. I <laughs> like I, as much as I love a movie. Yeah, you know. I think this is another like the dinner sequence is a thing for me where. The second she puts the mushrooms in the tea, you've already seen the dynamic of her like mothering him and stuff. Mm-hmm. You already know where everything's going, and this is another very long sequence. And it's a more interesting uh, one, but it's yeah. still just like a foregone conclusion that takes 13 minutes, which True. is a rough cinematic sell for me. And I think maybe it's possible that I overvalue and I mean overvalue implies there's like an absolute correct choice and there's no wrong way to enjoy movies or whatever so I'm not saying I do it incorrectly but like differently than you I really value surprise and novelty um sure but there wasn't a lot of surprise and licorice pizza for me like it was pretty straightforward like it was I wouldn't say it's like his days and confused. Like I some never knew it. what the next scene in licorice pizza was going to be. I could never, there's not a single scene in that movie where I could tell you what's going to happen next. That I movie mean, is I mean, so the, chaotic. The, the Bradley Cooper moment for sure. Like I thought for sure that was going to be a blow. Like the idea that Bradley Cooper just walks by them and that there is no pet. Like that to me was so surprising. Like that yeah. whole movie, I never could tell you what's going to happen next. Mm. I mean, it's certainly like punch drunk love and inherent vice are the are like the sort of kings of the just like Paul Thomas Anderson is. I mean, Unhinged. maybe actually, I think <laughs> inherent vice might not even apply. I haven't read the book, but like maybe if you've read the book, you'd be like, he's just following the book. It's not. Yeah, I don't think that's true from what I know. But, oh, no. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, I, th- I, th- I think he's tries to be faithful, but he does his own weird stuff. OK. He interjects a lot of his own things like the. I, I mean, the, 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 the emphasis on the relationship, I think, was something that wasn't as strongly in the book as it is in the movie. Personally, my hatred of There Will Be Blood comes from the fact that I'm a big fan of Upton Sinclair's oil. And <laughs> it's just not faithful. It's just like, <laughs> you did a bad job adapting this book, yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah. Yeah, no. Joking. Um, I that like- was an interesting movie for me at the time, too, just because, like... I'm waiting for the frogs falling out of the sky, and then I guess the ending is just... The um, ending is yeah, that, I yeah. think. This sequence, I really like. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I Again, think like, like a the lot car wash sequence, there's not a whole lot of dialogue to go with and, it. I mean, the music is great, but I, like, I especially love the work that the... Specifically, the women who work for him 
Mm -hmm. uh, like just undoing this and like actually like making it work and fixing the wedding dress and all that. Like there is a lot of this movie that can be read as, and I don't know if Paul Thomas Anderson is the nicest guy in the world on the set or if he's a fucking terror. I wouldn't be surprised if he was a terror just because he's so specific, but like whatever. I'm not like, I'm not making any kind of moral judgment about uh, that, but like there's a lot about this movie that is a little distasteful, great man sort of like, uh, but stuff. all these women are supporting him, and like you know, right? You know. And that, and I think that undoes the fact that this this sequence really undoes the myth of like he is the auteur of these dresses, and it's like that's what I thought. There's certainly people who've written things or said things like it's actually like idolizing him and no. a celebration of toxic no. masculinity or no. something. And I'm like, I don't see that, <laughs> but hey, you know. I guess I don't know. Maybe you're right in that. Like I don't. We don't need the sequence of the doctor showing up because he doesn't really serve any purpose. I mean, it's really just like their dynamic, Cyril and Alma's dynamic. Right. The here. doctor exists the same way that the um, drunk woman in the wedding dress exists, which is like yeah. Cyril is more conservative and is just like you know you have to do this thing because that's the way these things are done. And Alma is not part of this world, and she is not bound by those codes of ethics and stuff like that. And she is, you know, also she doesn't want to get caught. <laughs> she, is, she is scared of yeah. getting caught at this moment. So this is this is the part where it at least gets a little bit interesting because there's the potential that uh, the first time you see it, mm -hmm. that like he's like, oh, he's been poisoned by mushrooms. And then it's like, well, who prepared his food? Did it, you know, like, yeah, like, yeah, you're right. She is fueled by her paranoia a little bit here. Like, just, oh, no. What if they I get caught? Yeah. But especially when he tells the doctor to fuck off, she's like, good. That's the leverage I need. Yeah, yeah, now yeah, yeah. I can now I can play good cop and Cyril is bad cop. And then I get his attention. Right. Um, I read I read another interview where somebody pointed out the doctor looks like Philip Seymour Hoffman. I don't see that. <laughs> like, what? I don't even know what that would mean. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's a very movie. Look. That's the thing about uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. And I honestly think that's less true of this movie than like something like The Master or Inherent Vice or Punch Drunk Love or Magnolia or whatever. But like the thing about Paul Thomas Anderson is because everything isn't neatly this exists there because of this, like he these aren't like super articulated. Uh, everything has its place and purpose. There they are that there is that chaotic nature. There's a lot of space for people to bring their own interpretation to it. Yeah. And I think that is why people get so much out of his movies. And I think that's like a valid artistic approach. I'm not like trying to say the emperor necessarily has no clothes, even though often, often the result is these movies don't do anything for me. Cause I'm waiting to hear what he thinks. And he mm -hmm. never can, he never wraps it up. But like, I think a lot of people like to watch movies and slip their, and I say a lot of people as if I never do this, which is, I, of course I do this, but like they, they want to slip their pet predilections and, uh, um, interests into the meaning of a film they watch that speaks to them. Yeah. And Paul Thomas Anderson will let you do that. If you are only interested in the nature of like capital and religion, like you will absolutely see things that aren't there and there will be blood because there's a lot of empty space mm -hmm, for you to draw, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. So we all, we all bring ourselves to each movie viewing experience yeah. to the point of projecting sometimes. And at this point, it's an aesthetic choice. It's like, at this point, it's like, that's Paul Thomas Anderson's thing is creating these little and that's why I go pockets back to, where you get to put yourself in and you get to sort of just contemplate what's happening. 
Yeah, and it's like I even thought, do I really need to see Mulholland Drive for like the tenth time? But at the at the Lynch thing, and I'm like, yeah, I kind of do because I keep going back to it in a way that's like I want to make sure I understand every little thing in a way. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's it, it could be obsession or <laughs> like a compulsion, but there's also like a pleasure in doing that, and I think that's why we do what we do and watch movies or revisit movies because we're like, maybe they're, you know, pieces to the puzzle that actually make it, you know, or elevate it. And I think your argument, or at least what you said in the past is that I think you, you feel that maybe people elevate him too highly as like this amazing storyteller. I've always kind of felt, I don't know if he is the greatest storyteller, but I'm okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> like, cause everything else seems to fire on all cylinders sure. for me for the most part. Sure. I'm but not going to call are... Simon Liang a great dramaturgist, but his <laughs> movies really speak to me. And when I watch something sure. like The Hole, yeah. there's a lot of fucking space where I can fill in the blanks and put my own intentions oh, yeah, in yeah, there. Yeah. You know, uh, I Tropical Malady is an incredible film, and every time I watch that movie, I spend about sixty percent of my energy actually watching and paying attention to the movie, and about forty percent of my energy daydreaming and and like. And I think that's his in- his intention. Yeah, exactly. A it's a movies. choice. He yeah. makes movies that are designed this way so the audience can do this. And like, you know, I was talking about like with Crash, like the way David Cronenberg slows the pace so that you have time to think about how this, you know, resonates with your own life and things like that. Like that's, these are all acceptable aesthetic choices. Um, I just, yeah, for me, frequently David Lynch um, and often uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, I do not get that uh, feeling. I, I uh, I don't know what makes something evocative or not evocative, but uh, never cursed. Never cursed. I always, for some reason in my head, and I don't really have a good argument for it, and for some reason in my head, this is Phantom Thread, the the message that he, oh. which is like, yeah. it's not even, like because he does, it's not exclusively like embroidered messages that he slips into the linings of of dresses and stuff. It's also, you know, he says coins, you know, locks of hair or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um but like in my head, whenever I think of Phantom Thread, I think of the things that are hidden in the lining. And I think that that is, there's a meta angle to that of like how well, Paul Thomas Anderson is, you know, uh, not, to cut to not stating what the films are about. Well, it's interesting that we cut from the never cursed reveal to this, yeah. where there's an actual phantom of sorts. This is the only sequence in this movie that's like this. That, yeah. I mean, that I, I, I say that reality. breaks. Well, you know, it breaks reality if you're a skeptic who doesn't believe in ghosts. But if you are skeptic, but if you believe in ghosts, then it's just, and then a ghost appears because ghosts exist. Yeah. You know, like I'm a, you know, I don't believe in life after death, but like, I don't know. It's not necessarily, especially considering he could be hallucinating the beliefs of Woodcock. He could be hallucinating, though. I think even. Um, even putting a hallucination on screen is a choice of breaking object the objective eye of the camera. Um, but like also there could objectively be a ghost there because this yeah. is a world where ghosts exist. I like when you have a character that has been talked about a lot and has been a presence, but hasn't actually been in the film. Mm-hmm. And then when you si- finally see their face, they're not what you're expecting. Yeah. Um, She's—I mean, she looks exactly like she did in the picture. I, but you don't really film. get a close-up of the picture. 
Like she's in the yeah. same pose and the dress, but I don't think yeah. you really see her face that well in that picture. I, I could be so. wrong. I think so. I could be but wrong. But she's just yeah. She's just like hanging out there and it's interesting that And then this sh- looks and this again is like it's a little on the nose. Yeah. I guess it doesn't bother me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, for her to appear and then the ghost disappears as she, <laughs> as she's around now. Ooh. We're just watching the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's... Again, it's just, it's a long sequence where this has been going on for uh, the pace of the film previous and immediately after this speeds up again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't think for the rest of the movie we get a sequence this drawn out. I think you're right. Um, I mean, I guess. That's sort the of the omelet, shape of this thing. The, the, yeah, certainly them. The omelet <laughs> sequence is like, that's like a three minute long scene. Mm-hmm. That's not a, yeah. you know. 16 minute long over the course of one night or whatever. I didn't, I didn't actually time all of this, but it's, I'm just yeah. subjectively. It feels like this is the last moment where it's this slow again. And if at this point in the movie, it took a different turn and the movie became a different thing than the way it was previously, I would be like, you know, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent on the pacing or the whatever of this. But like if suddenly things got stranger and more developed, like, like you were talking about, like in Crash, like I feel like they could go further. I feel like they could like that to me is 10,000 percent true in Phantom Thread, where what happens immediately after him getting poisoned is the thing that happened immediately before him getting poisoned, which is mm. they're close. And then she annoys him, goes far. Cyril wedges herself in. Well, now he's being incredibly open and, and loving all of a right. sudden. Because maybe he sort of realizes how right, much but then he needs what her. happens after they get married? Same thing. She scrapes yeah. the toast, and, and it's, the, it's the fucking breakfast scene we've seen four times. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think even she's taken aback by him being this way all of a sudden. Well, she doesn't know how he's gonna. You know, that was a very impulsive thing to poison your lover. I don't think she is like this like Joker character who has masterminded this whole thing. Yeah. I think she is just like I need to bring him to his knees. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't even know if she necessarily knows the dosage of like, like she does. It's it's not like she, it's not like she's a mushroom expert and therefore knows exactly how much to give him. Like she could have killed him late in the film. She does say that like, uh, you could die. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm, so it makes no, it's no surprise to me that she is surprised. Uh, even that he's up and about, (laughs) I think it says volumes too. Is that like he ignores the finished dress that's right there? Yeah, he goes right to her. I mean, he does, he does see it. He does acknowledge it, uh, mm. but that's not the focus. Yeah. This moment, this morning, this is what her dream of what their relationship could be. She has saw like maybe glimpses of it. Like this is what she thought could happen. And now it's happening. And now it's happening. Yeah. And so, obviously, she's going to circle back around to poisoning again because it's, it's, it's temporary. Mm. You know. 
not unlike Crash, where <laughs> the just, dynamic it's there cyclical. is no there is no happily ever after dynamic. Yeah, I guess it's just the cycle is going to continue, and maybe the cycle isn't a bad thing. I mean, that's the weird. I, thing. I, I mean, I think I, I think I like think Crash, this is a movie that is absolutely not interested in saying it's a good yeah. or a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, if I'm in in, in my reality, <laughs> I'm not going to poison somebody, you know. Right, but you know, it's movies aren't literal. Movies yeah. are dreams, you know. We all live inside a dream. Who said that? David Lynch. Oh, pretty good. Yeah. I never thought my dreams would have so much commuting. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, well, if I could live inside a dream, could I do a little jump cut here and not have to sit on the bus for 45 minutes? Oh, well. <laughs> Maybe that's what the afterlife is, is like we get to cut a version of our lives the way we wanted it to be. The afterlife? Yeah, maybe. If is that, are, are you describing the plot of the Corieta film? Because I haven't seen it. Oh, I haven't. Maybe that is the plot. I've been, I've been wanting to see it because, I mean. I know that there is a, in the afterlife, you direct your life. A scene. Oh. That, that's like a vague premise, but I don't I can't recall exactly. Hmm. Yeah, it's a little Who is that on life. the left side? I don't know. Because Cyril's on the right. I don't know. And traditionally that her that's one the bride's side, the husband's side. Is that her one and only friend? I don't think she has one friend. Hmm. Maybe she worked with her at the restaurant. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Or it's I it makes I would assume even more that it's someone he knows. It's just yeah. like we gotta have someone on your side, but like I'm, we're gonna do this my way. Like I don't, I don't need some like restaurant mm-hmm. riffraff. <laughs> yeah, if I ever met, you know, or if I interviewed Vicky Creeps, I'd ask her some questions. Like, what do you think Alma's life was like before she even worked at that restaurant? Because I'd just be curious to know what she thought. I'm assuming like a lot of directors and actors sit down and do that. You know, like map out a backstory. Most acting schools involve that. Yeah, yeah I would think so to an extent. Um, the primacy of this like research and this automatic writing and like all that sort of stuff, it, that depends on the acting school. But like most of the time, it's just good practice to know who you are. Mm-hmm. But then immediately, it's not the scraping of the toast. It's the cereal chewing, which to be fair, as a, as a frequent eater of cereal myself, listening to people Ugh. eat cereal is irritating. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wouldn't scrape my spoon and cross my teeth like that. <laughs> I wouldn't even find that pleasurable to actually do it. Oh, no, no, no. She does scrape the toast. Like, I don't know. I'm being conflated. Crunching. Well, that makes me wonder if, like, I mean, because he's got, like, sensory sensitivity, too, you know. <laughs> he's, he's a very Roderick Usher type. That's a cool hat. Yeah. He's very well dressed. That was the other. I said, I said at the very beginning of this commentary track that my partner bought little hairbrushes from the opening. The other thing was, I wish I could afford clothes like this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There are times like, when I'm dressing myself, I'm like, I'm really just wearing the same thing all the time and yeah. it's not special. That's fine. We don't have yeah. money, Jim. Yeah. Well, That's beautiful. It's it's a slightly surrealistic, slightly expressionistic touch. The mm-hmm. cross dissolve there. Maybe now I can convince Colin this should be on his 
Christmas movies podcast because there's a Christmas scene. <laughs> I mean, there's a Christmas tree. Oh my this god! This scene is longer than the Christmas scene. In, well, yeah. it might not be longer than the Christmas scene in uh, Umbrellas of Cherbourg. <laughs> <laughs> Again, yeah. I'm not enjoying this movie at this point, but I don't mind looking at it. Yeah. In, in some ways, commentary tracks are like an ideal way to look at movies like this. Where it's just <laughs> like, I don't have to pay attention to the tedious scene yeah. and stuff. I can just talk about, oh my God, look out that window back there. You see mm-hmm. the little streak of cloud mm-hmm. and like the bare tree. Like, what is this? What is, is any of this green screened or did he literally have to go out? Like, I don't know. Uh, yeah. I wonder how you like, ugh, how you plan for something like that. Or do you plan for something like that? Suddenly it's like, oh, it looks perfect. Let's do it now. <laughs> yeah, I think I, after um, rewatching Carol, Todd Haynes' Carol, I, I, I suddenly had this realization that, oh, I want to take pictures a lot again because I love... <laughs> Photography. That movie. Never... That movie has the look of a photo of another. Oh photograph. god! Yeah. yeah, it's so gorgeous. So, like this to me is an undeveloped between the doctor and her. And her oh yeah, and him. yeah, yeah. Like, what if? What if instead of where the movie goes, the movie was them looping more and more people into their thi- like? Oh well, was escalating things. Crash kind of does that, and it loops more people. Right, their, right. Well, know, yeah, no, it, Crash is all about the escalation, and yeah. the, this movie, essentially... Uh, it seems like he wants her to, yeah, <laughs> break free from him, or vice versa. I mean, Certainly. I think he sees Woodcock, and he figures, yeah, Woodcock, that's not a guy with a high libido. He might be gay, for all I know. Mm-hmm. Like... And also, again, I hate that, him, so if I could cuckold him, that would be all right by me. Again, like, there is kind of a significant age gap between the two of them. I between don't know, the doctor? No, between the Alma and Woodcock, yeah. really. I mean, that's just, that's a common dynamic in... Yeah. He's, he's, mm-hmm. he's wealthy and successful. He shouldn't have to date an old woman. Like, that's just, like, how heterosexual, like, <sighs> romance is arranged. It's, uh, you know... It is uncommon for it to be older woman, younger man. Like, that's just, mm-hmm. you know. How old is David Lynch's wife? I don't know. I think he's 50 years younger than him. Something like that. 40 years. Oh, dear Lord. Yeah, he's Lord one of those Lord. guys who's just, like, consistently, like, getting divorces and then marrying younger women. <laughs> uh, I don't think he's full-blown Al Pacino, who I think is dating a 20-year-old, 20-something. Yeah. I think Nicolas Cage might be another. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like if you can, if you're rich and wealthy, and you don't, you know, if like if you don't view relationships as fulfilling things, but instead as ways to get what you want, then of course you're a man with unilateral power. You're gonna, yeah, do that. It's nothing too compelling about that dynamic. Also, it's entirely possible for someone to be much older than their partner and for that to work out fine. I'm not necessarily casting a judgment, but I'm saying when you look at the overall trend, it's like, all right, I know what's going on here. Um, I don't know. Maybe the woman who dated Mick Jagger and now Al Pacino uh, was in fact madly in love with both of them. Or maybe she just, you know, is only aroused by older men. Like that's, that's valid too. I'm just saying. 
Oh it's, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Uh, it's an eye roll from me. That's what mm-hmm. I'm. That's what I'm not gonna. And here's where she says something about her background. Right. Well, you already know that Alma yeah. is an immigrant. She yeah. has an accent. Like, right. there's no new information here. Stealing things or attacking people. Yeah. That's a odd thing to say. No, it isn't. It's, it's racist. <laughs> like, that's what racists think. Yeah. I mean, it's not racism. I, it's xenophobia. They're the same race. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's like, it's whatever. It's That's what prejudiced assholes who only exist in their cloistered realities of other upper class white people who are British yeah. and no, pure blood right. and all yeah. that. I mean, this is 1950s England. So this is like the era of the black shirts and the, okay, uh, yeah. like, you know. I think this is the era of the black shirts. Mm-hmm. Maybe that maybe that was during World War II and the black shirts were pro Nazi or maybe like the thirties or something. I could be totally wrong. You know what? I don't know much about anything. So but it does not surprise me that a rich English woman hates people <laughs> who aren't rich and from England. <laughs> That's what I'll say. I don't like this scene because it makes me a little uncomfortable in that uh, I've done this. Not recently, but like in some of my earlier relationships, I was more of like, no, I just want to stay home and watch a movie. I don't want to go out and party or go out and do stuff with you. Mm-hmm. And I don't. I, I Now I, it's like I wouldn't act that way. I would actually make an effort <laughs> and go out. Yeah, but Woodcock's not going to make that effort. I know, I know. But still, I'm just like, ugh. I remember when I did something like that. Yeah, yeah. it's like one of those things where it's like, <laughs> on the one hand, at this point in the movie, I'm like fully off board, do not care what happens to either of these characters. On the other hand, if you get an excuse for a New Year's Eve party scene. <laughs> sure. I mean, that was my initial feeling of Crash is like, I don't I don't know if I really care about James Spader and yeah. Deborah Caronger yeah. that much. Like, I, it's hard for me to get on board with what they do and... They're more they're they're more of these automatons than human beings. Yeah. So what's what's the and you've you've you felt that way about Hal Hartley movies? Oh yeah. Well, Hal Hartley movies are like romantic comedies. Like that's a very different. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. like Crash is a very specific. Like I am exploring an intellectual idea, and I recognize the truth of those characters, even if I don't particularly like want to run up and hug them and be friends with them. Yeah. Um. This, I've recognized the truth of these characters an hour ago, and now I'm just done recognizing that truth. I'm ready to move on. Um, but like Hal Hartley movies, it's like a rom-com mm-hmm. where they're robots, and I'm like, well, this is not how you do this. But, but this, this, scene, this whole sequence is yeah. stunning. Who's going who's gonna to complain about this? <laughs> yeah. I pretty much always post stills of this sequence on New Year's Eve, you know. I mean, even like, the first time viewing, which I've I've liked this movie more, uh, at least a little bit. I don't think I ever got over my initial uh, miss, you know. I don't think I ever really got over the initial things I didn't like about it. But like, I like it a little bit more every time I watch it. And yeah. the, even the first time I saw this movie, when I hated it at this point in the movie. I love this sequence. Like, oh, my yeah. eyes got all big and my mouth watered. And I'm like, look at that fucking Confederate flag on that covered wagon and the <laughs> balloons falling down. And there's an elephant. Like, what the hell? Right? PTA is a madman. 
I hope this movie yeah, makes $100 million so he can do something this crazy again. Just for this, just for this sequence, yeah. I think this movie was all kind of a relative flop for him. I can't recall the box office take on it. I mean, I don't think it was like a massively expensive movie, so I don't think it was. But I like, felt like it was successful in terms of awards and critics, and I could be, yeah, I could be, I could be incorrect, but I feel in my mind that's I, one of those things I, I I never retain, but somebody like Eric Childress always retains. Yeah, like, yeah, I, I don't read I, that stuff. It was yeah. I'm I'm pulling that out of my ass. And like just yeah, the contrast of the score, the melancholy score with like the joy of New Year's Eve, like because every time every New Year's Eve there is like this weird internal conflict of like, oh, it's New Year's Eve, be happy. Mm-hmm. It's you know, it's what if he went year. up to her and then gave the Billy Crystal speech? When Harry met Sally. Oh God, Would that make the movie better or worse? Worse? Yeah, <laughs> agreed. <laughs> With the fact that they don't speak to each other, it's just them, like, again, like, there's three... I mean, everything that needs to be said is that, like, the fact that he's here is his apology. He's never going to be the person to bring himself to apologize. Yeah. But this is his contrition. There's, like, three moments in this movie of a staring contest, too. Yeah, and see, like those choices that he makes, and like you mentioned, the, uh, the 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 very long shot of Mark Wahlberg's face in Boogie Nights—that's the stuff that gets me excited. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, just do it. You feel it? Go for it. For sure. I think for me, my excitement comes from the surprise of seeing Paul Thomas Anderson discover something mm-hmm. and not know why, and that surprise doesn't exist in a movie. As often, like the, uh, the movie, like this, as often. Yeah. Well, it's funny though. I mean, like uh, a, a lot of his more recent work have been growers, and yeah, certainly Inherent Vice. I didn't jive with on a first viewing at all. How many times have you seen Licorice Pizza so far? Uh, three. Wow, and it's still just like not quite there for you. I, yeah, I, I wish I loved it more than I do. Yeah. <laughs> I keep thinking, like, yeah, you know, maybe fourth or fifth viewing. Who knows? Maybe they'll, it'll change, but. I've only seen it the one time. Yeah. Still might be my favorite movie. <laughs> There's a lot to love about it, for sure. I mean, a lot of his movies diminish. Like, Inherent Vice, I liked more. Mm-hmm. Master, I liked less. There Will Be Blood, I definitely liked less the more I watch it. That could probably happen with me for that one. In Heart Eight, I never really go back to because I'm like, eh, there's not a whole lot. To- I think I've only seen Heart Eight the one time as well. So they have that moment, and then they have this moment. So we've already Uh, got, we once again follow up the scene of them coming together and with the scene of him. I guess it's the show that now Cyril's kind of more on Alma's side. That's true. No, no, you're right. That is different uh, in this scene. Yeah. <laughs> I 
Oh, Leslie Manville. So good. Yeah. <laughs> Is she the Mrs. Danvers of this movie? Yeah. I think that's 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 fair. He does not want to say this to her. He wants yeah. her to intuit it and say it to him. Yeah. <laughs> Get rid of her. No, you know, I take back what I said in terms of this being just another repetition. This is actually a Yeah, no, I This like is a it. good scene. Yeah. And her hearing all this, well, it's time to go back and hunt for mushrooms. Another line that I don't. Oh, Terrence fucking girl! Oh. <laughs> like, right, yeah, because he's mostly he hasn't really been loud, screamy. There will be blood, Daniel Day Lewis no, in this no, movie no. at all, and that's no. just kind of a. No, he's he's like passive aggression personified. Yeah. Earlier on, he said, like, a house without change is a dead house. I don't know. He said a house without what? He said, like, a house without any change is a dead house or something like that. Did he? Yeah. I don't remember that. That was uh, when he was, like, kneeling down to propose to her. Like, a house should change. Ah, I see. Yeah. Well. And this music. (laughs) Yeah, it's good. So. And I'm guessing, yes, this is the, like, he's realizing what she's doing in this moment. Because he stops, like, paying such close attention to his work, and he's, like, looking up at her. And I guess maybe he just intuitively knows what she's doing? That is a question. How does he know? I don't know. I don't know either. Do you think this is the second time, or do you think that we are now jumping ahead into the loop where, like... Uh, because he he shows no indication of knowing, have any, incl- and he would have no reason to know because it was like di- you know it was minced up tiny and put in his tea. Like he would have no reason to ever assume that she poisoned him the first time. That's a good question. I really don't know how he knows he's being poisoned here. Outside you- of like he's observing her more as opposed to like you know. Yeah, I mean this scene he knows. Yeah. What has happened in the like, or is, yeah, is there, or the fact that you don't know like what is what does that add for you that we that now jump to him knowing, like he's willing to submit right, but like that he doesn't discover it that it's just sort of he just knows now because yeah. it's, it's an unusual choice. It is an unusual choice. There isn't like a reveal of him like discovering what she's doing. It's right. just like again a very quiet, silent scene. 
Well, it's and, uh, for a while. There's no dialogue, but it's yeah. actually a bombastic scene in terms of the sound design. Sure. Between the two of them, yes, though, it's yes, almost yes, like yes. yeah. And that look. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> An extra butter. Yep. Things, something that he hates. Maybe he's just like, oh, that's She's it. Gonna, he's going to eat it the way I make it. Yep. So for me, this movie is like if the servant didn't have the third act. Okay. Where the third act is where <laughs> we take the twisted dynamic that we have been glancing on and just sort of blow it up and take it into some absolutely bizarre, surreal... Mm-hmm. Directions. I should and, watch that again. And sometime. it just becomes this heightened thing where suddenly, like, it's like, is this, like, are these characters not even characters anymore? For they're just metaphor. Like, it's just, it's really powerful because it's just so much larger than life in a way that the movie hadn't been at this time. It like, mm-hmm. there's this sever moment, and that's I, that's like so desperately what I wanted from this movie. I'm, and I'm, I'm curious to like, yeah, this scene came earlier because this scene's great. Yeah. And the, you know, every time I watch this, I'm like, this scene's great. Everything about it, I love. Uh, this is not how I want the movie to end. This is how I want. I yeah. wanted this scene to happen yeah. twenty minutes earlier, and then I want wanted the pre next twenty minutes to be mm-hmm. exploring that. Well, yeah, I think yeah, your initial feelings were um, that this was basically just like you know a heterosexual version of the Duke of Burgundy, or this you know just. Yeah, like you're saying about the servant, it's there. There probably could be more fleshed out as a result of this reveal here. That would be very interesting. Yeah. Outside of her just like talking to the doctor about, you know, what her, his sickness and everything. Like I, I also wonder, like, did she reveal to the doctor that she's been poisoning him? I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think the doctor knows what's up. Yeah. Seems like a bit of a dope. I mean, he's so young. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She doesn't give him a whole lot of water, but she gives herself a lot. Well, she's making as much noise as possible <laughs> in pouring the water. Yeah. She is exerting her power over him. Mm-hmm. And that lamp. Uh, yeah. Oh, so good. More staring. <laughs> just so bizarre though to me like he's relishing in the fact that he's about to be poisoned just like okay I'm gonna do this again does he have a death wish (laughs) not a death wish (laughs) I don't know I think he wants he found his mother I think he found a yeah I think he found someone who can put him in his place and he relishes the fact that he has found it Mm. and he wants this moment to last as long as possible again this is very sexual this is Oh, oh, yeah, especially what she says. It's like, yeah, and I don't know, so many people either feel really uncomfortable with the reveal or they laugh. I think uncomfortable after, probably, but. He doesn't make a funny face there. 
<laughs> kind of a smile, yeah. Just watching. The I movie. know you can't stop. The scene always does that to me, where I'm like entranced. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Cut to him in the bathroom. Ugh. Oh, so for me, it's so weird. I still, I, yeah, I got the ending of crash <laughs> is bitter and sweet. It is like tragic and, um, hopeful, hopeful. Yeah. I don't think this movie is that like this, this is like kinky, but it's not like, Oh, isn't this terrible for these two? No, it's not. Uh, it strengthened them. Right. So I think this movie way. does say that these two find an equilibrium. Yeah. And that everything is right. Mm -hmm. And then... Yeah, it's almost like saying, like, if he dies, oh well. <laughs> right, well, no, that's exactly what he's, she's saying. But, like, this dynamic is what he has been looking for. He found it. Yep. And now the cycle is broken. He has found his twisted version of peace. Mm hmm And that version of peace is sort of just, like... be on like, the verge of death, really. Right, but it's also just, like, her image of having a baby and, like, pushing a baby in a cradle and being married. And, like, it's just, it's a very, uh, comparative to all the way a lot of films of this nature, of the servants of the world, of the Dukes of Burgundy of the world. It's a very boring, uh, sort of conclusion. 
for uh, me. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm not too. It's. It's funny. Like I'm not too crazy about the final moment of licorice pizza. This. This. This jump ahead of licorice pizza meeting. to me actually feels like a good companion piece to Crash, where I don't think it's meant to be uh, good necessarily. I feel like it's framed as good, isn't it? I think the irony is that it's framed as good when it clearly isn't. <laughs> like I think. Yeah. I think that's the dynamic. Whereas this is. I don't uh, know. Less if we complicated this. to me. I like this shot. Obviously. Oh man, <laughs> no complaints here. This, no. this looks like fucking money. Mm-hmm. Um, you ever see E. Vitelloni? I think uh, is the Fellini film. No, with the I didn't see. There's a Fellini. really great New Year's Eve uh, party sequence in E. Vitelloni that kind of this whole venue uh, reminds me of all of that moment. Yeah, uh, that's a better, not a better. Uh, a, that's a very good uh, Fellini movie. And now she is a part of the House of Woodcock. Right. Yeah. And like Crash, a movie that eventually gets to a point, as opposed to Crash where the whole movie takes place in this, about a kink that's not real, really. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't think that there's a lot of poison play in the world of BDSM. I could be incorrect. I'm no know. expert, but like I've never heard of poison play before this movie. Uh, now it's all the rage. Kids are just poisoning each other left and right. Yep. Ted Turner was right. Should have never released Phantom <laughs> Thread. Now all these teenagers are pointing, poisoning each other. I do like that last line. I'm getting hungry. Yeah. Why do you uh, think it plays out over this sequence? The the end credits. Um I guess to you know show that they're on the same level to some degree here that they're connected but also she shrugs at the end. It's almost like the here we go moment at the end of Punch Drunk Love like, huh, eh, we'll see what happens. We don't know. Like it could be good, it could be bad, we may not last, maybe we will. Yeah. Phantom Thread. Phantom Thread. What a movie. Johnny I Green. Mean, Johnny Greenwood presents Phantom <laughs> Thread. And, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson shot it, and it's gorgeous. It's stunning. Yeah, yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson and Johnny Greenwood and mm-hmm. Daniel Day Lewis, and I forget the actor's name. Vicky Creeps. Vicky Creep with a T? Creeps. Creeps. Yeah. Vicky Creeps uh, present, well, Leslie Manville. All right. oh, so course, it turns out course. films are collaborative. There yes. are no auteurs. Do you think Louise Guzman's ever going to be in a Paul Thomas Anderson movie again? I had that I thought would, as I, I would was watching so. Punch Drunk Love. I would hope so. Man, Louise Guzman just felt like, you want to talk about like Paul Thomas Anderson being driven by chaos. Like Louise Guzman just felt like a great uh, just avatar of mm. Paul Thomas Anderson's thing for a bit there. <laughs> yeah. I don't well, know John what Louise... C. Riley shows up as Herman Munster and Licorice Pizza, and I'm like, oh, I want more John C. Riley. <laughs> I don't remember that. I got to see that movie again. Yeah, just like a millisecond. Like he says one line, and the camera moves away from him. That's funny. I don't know where Luis Guzman's in in his career. I actually couldn't even tell you how old Luis Guzman is. He might he not be. He was on a show not too long ago that I saw, uh-huh. like three years ago, that was, eh. I forgot what it was called. <laughs> 
But uh, what a what a way to do episode 200 with these two movies. Goodness gracious. Yeah. And I'm certainly warming up more to Crash. Yeah. And, uh, and I I certainly uh, I have I have complaints about the structure, but I I don't yeah. mind sitting here and watching uh, Phantom Thread and listening and to the music and watching all the cinematography. That's for sure. Well, this was the movie that I took the risk during the pandemic when the music box just had reopened and they're like, hey, you still got to wear a mask and things are still scary out there, Uh but uh, come on in. We're showing Phantom Thread. And I was like one of six people in the whole theater. That's funny. I'm like, I'll risk it. What the hell? Bum, 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 bum. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, I should learn how to play this. I can't play. The, I, I, I can't do that. Like, you the can't? Way he, I don't think I could do what he's doing there. But like that. I mean, there is a very, dun, 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 there is a very dun, dun, dun. intense, specific syncopation going yeah. on here. That's yeah. probably quite difficult. Thank you so much for joining us on the 200th episode of Directors Club Podcast. It was a yeah, podcast built on uh, split opinions and continues to be so in some way. Yeah, but at the same time, these are two of my favorite directors, too. So what a great way to, you know, this is a great idea on your part. I always struggle to like, what do we do? I mean, I don't want to just do what we do, like, for my birthday episodes and just do another, like, hey, let's assign movies or, hey, let's play games or, you know, I want to do something special and something different that hopefully the audience would enjoy because you don't normally get full length commentaries on this on the show. No, so but I enjoy doing them. I did too. So you should much. probably pop on over to Tracks of the Damned where you will, I don't want to say soon because uh, the pace that I work, who knows when it will actually happen. But Speaking of Cronenberg. You will have Brandon Cronenberg's Possessor uh, yeah. being covered on a full episode of Tracks of the Damned. I have a feeling listening to you talk about it will make me appreciate it even more. You know what's funny is, uh, and this is a common thing that's happened to me even with Crash, even though I had enthusiasm for it for this commentary track, the act of prepping for a commentary track makes you so sick of a movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can can see that. I bought the Criterion Blu-ray of Crash so that I could, you know, do what I needed to do to uh, do the commentary. I can't imagine the next time I'm going to watch Crash (laughs) because I've seen it like seven times in the past three weeks. Yeah. That's yeah. I could That's do not it. a movie. That's it. not a comfort food movie. No. That's not a movie you watch seven times in three weeks. No. If you watch Crash seven times in three weeks, you get put on an FBI watch list. <laughs> <laughs> um, Beaverton's tattoo. That's weird. Did this get? Be- is this one of those uh, Johnny Greenwood scores that doesn't get nominated for best score because it's it based off have. of yeah? But Puck Beaverton's tattoo. Mm-hmm. That's a character from Inherent Vice. Hmm. That's weird. Maybe they just use a piece of music from Inherent Vice in this movie. Like a, like point. the melody. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. Oh, could be. That's interesting. Uh, There's licorice pizza in Inherent Vice, right? You said? I, I don't know if licorice was a topping, but there's a weird pizza in Inherent Vice. Okay. I mean, I double-checked to make sure licorice wasn't on it, and it wasn't. So. Do you know what Paul Thomas Anderson's next movie is going to be? No. What do you hope it's going to be? I I have no idea. That's what excites me the most. Like that's true. I honestly, you want to talk about like a movie? This movie does not surprise me. Uh, Paul, the career of Paul Thomas Anderson is always exciting because you're always like, "Ooh, what's happening next?" Yeah. Go back and listen to episode, geez, thirty-five when we talked about Magnolia and There Will Be Blood. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't. Go Where we're talking that. about like the master is like, "What is it? What could it be?" Don't. Oh my god. Don't listen to old episodes of this podcast. It's 
I, I wonder, yeah, I wonder about that because I'm I listen. You should listen to old episodes of this podcast that I'm not on because those are pretty good. But old episodes that I'm on, it's just like. No, I think that was one of our better ones. There's certainly ones where I'm disappointed in. <laughs> it's even going back to them like, eh, could have done a better job with that. No, I still, I, I still have a, I have a chip on my shoulder because Steve Procopi told me I didn't know what drama was. And I rewatched Magnolia. I'm like. Fucker, I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) So I I literally like like the way my brain works, I only remember bad things. Like I only ever have like memories that are just like, remember when you were a dumbass and everyone hated you? Mm -hmm. So like I will just be like fucking at work making a latte and then just like I don't think you know what drama is. And I'm like, nuts yeah yeah so so that's my association with that episode episode 200 almost was me like saying hey do you want to reunite with steve while we talk about inherent vice and phantom thread and i was like nah maybe not let's do something different let's do something different i mean you should probably do that episode instead with someone who knows what drama is i I do want to have like an extended conversation on inherent vice though because i think there's a lot going on in that i we could do this with inherent vice we probably could. I that's that's a Maybe movie I year. own. I could watch that a hundred times. Yeah, me too. Maybe we should involve edibles. Ooh, it's actually <laughs> as someone who recorded a commentary track high uh, and I then promptly deleted it. It's it's not. Uh, I shouldn't have even had this beer. Honestly, if you if there was gaps of silence at Phantom Thread, there probably wouldn't have been there if I had my if I didn't have my little beer. But I like the drama of cracking the beer. Yeah. Right when the, well, some I get so engrossed in the movie that I'm like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be talking. <laughs> During this moment, I'm just like so involved, even though it's mainly in the background. But this was fantastic. Uh, again, thank you everybody for listening yeah. and sticking around all this time. Yeah, I'm hoping that we can keep it going. Yeah, we'll see. Absolutely. And you'll be on for another episode, I'm sure, in the future, maybe uh, with Bill or with me. Who knows? Some point this year, I bet. Yeah. yeah. So until then, directorsclubpodcast.com. Mm-hmm. Send an email to directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And there's also a little thing called Patreon where I try to do uh, new movie review monologues now where I just like ramble about a movie that's recent uh, just because I'm like, you know, I just watched something interesting and I'm going to talk about it to you. Mm. <laughs> so patreon.com slash directors club if you want to support the show. Now playing network.net for Patrick's amazing podcast, Tracks of the Damned. Yeah. Bill's podcast supporting characters yeah. and many, many, many more True. that you should all check out at yeah. your earliest convenience. Uh-huh. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you. For being here. Oh yeah, absolutely. And let's uh yeah, let's say goodbye. Bye. <laughs>
I don't know. Maybe they got good makeup or what. But like, I just imagine, like he, I just imagine him coming home every day from the set with just covered in bruises. <laughs> I, I could definitely see that. I hope his, I hope his cock is okay. All right, your next title, gentlemen, Mike. The title is the Butt X Files. <laughs> <laughs> Ha <laughs> 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 